Volume 2, Issue 51, Mirror's Edge. In 2008, Shooty Shooty Bang Bang experts Digital Illusions Creative Entertainment, or DICE, were given the go-ahead by John Riccatello, EA's CEO, who was trying to change the image of Electronics Arts, or EA for short, to produce something truly different and unique, a first-person parkour game. Here with me tonight to discuss if they succeeded or not, or merely slipped off the high-rise edge, are James Carter. Hello. Darren Gargett. Floor Jam. Carmen. <laughs> hey, guys. And Sean O'Brien. Hello. Please note, there will be spoilers. Issue 2, oh, Volume 2, our second year. And just to give a little bit of context, um, we are recording this extremely early. We This would, in fact, be our summer break that we uh, decided we were going to have. But due to weird scheduling issues, we're recording this, I think, within the first week of our summer break. So um, if Mirror's Edge 2 does get announced between now and when the show goes up, somewhere in October, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, around there. Uh, we apologise because most of our things that we'll talk about will probably be going, ah, Mirror's Edge 2, yay. Because one of our main talking points is, why is there no Mirror's Edge 2? So, right, uh, first port of call, talking points, as we always do, experience with this game. Um, so, Carl, did you play this game upon release or was it a late, later purchase? Uh, it was actually one that I asked and received for, for Christmas in that year because I was a bit crowded out with earlier releases. So its release was November 2008 on the PS3 and the 360? And the PC yeah. one followed, wasn't it, I think, January 2009? Yeah, that came out later. Uh, yeah, I, I got it for Christmas that year. It was uh, it was the, the probably the present that I wanted the most, so I had to wait that extra month. Um, played through it the entirety on Christmas Day. Uh, absolutely just adored the game uh, so it was just so much fun to play something different so yeah it was a great Christmas why do people do that why Why when they want something so badly do they go I'll oh, wait a month give me it for Christmas anticipation uh, there's something about playing games over Christmas though like on the Christmas day um, I usually reserve Ratchet and Clank for Christmas day but you know that's that's for a different podcast I guess but there is some definite merit to playing one game for the entirety of Christmas day and just ignore annoy family that's an RPG that's what you need to do the entire <laughs> Christmas period so, Darren, what about yourself? 
Well, I was struggling to remember when I got Mirror's Edge into my gaming collection. Uh, it stayed there ever since I got it. And I always thought I got it on day one, but checking the achievements list on Xbox.com says to me that I got it about a month after, just before Christmas. Um, I can't remember when I got it, how I got it, but um, yeah, I, just, I, I think it was the World of Warcraft coming in and sort of making me not play many games. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're playing Warcraft, you ain't got time for anything else. But mm-hmm. Mirror's Edge caught my eye. Uh, reviews were quite good. Um, and yeah, I was very, I was, I was all about parkour at that time. I was too lazy to actually go and run. Yeah, I was really like um, into all the videos and just basically anything that involved watching it as opposed to doing it. So when a game came out from, uh, from DICE, I was well up for it. I just, I, you're all about parkour. Was that was uh, that a time when MTV was still fashionable? <laughs> I was all about it, man. I had the t-shirt. Sean, what about yourself? I honestly don't remember. <laughs> I played the uh, the demo when it came out, and I remember playing a lot of that. But I um, and I know that I didn't buy it because I'm part of the problem, and I rent a lot of games. So I know I rented it kind of around release. Um, did Dead Space come out around the same time? Because I seem to remember getting them both at the same time and playing one more than the other Dead Space came earlier in the year Dead Space came out the same day as Fable 2 and Ah, Mm. a week before Fallout 3 they are often coupled together though all the time aren't they Dead Space and Mirror's Edge always seem to be in the same sentence somewhere yeah because they were EA's new IP Mm -hmm. push for 2008 but I do remember playing the demo a ton like just repeatedly over and over again and uh, I really liked it so when I rented it I played the shit out of it and Ended up liking it a lot. James? Um, I could have sworn that I got I played through it in 2009, but like Darren, uh, achievements are really useful in tracking when you actually played a game. Uh, January 2011. <laughs> okay. <laughs> somewhat, <laughs> after, <laughs> somewhat after. Um, I think what's confusing me is that I played the demo when it came out, um, which was, I think, if I remember correctly, a couple of weeks before the actual game release. Um, and I played it then... And I'd kind of been burned by Skate because I played that demo, enjoyed it, then started playing the game when it came out and just didn't get much from it at all. And so I played this demo and I enjoyed it, but, and I don't really know what the but was, there was just something about it just didn't quite entice me into, into getting it sort of day one or or even obviously within a couple of years after the release, so... Yeah, it was about two years and a couple of months change uh, afterwards that I, I picked it up. Um, a good friend of mine had, had played through the demo and got the game and played through it and had, had badgered me about it um, a few times to say, you know, it was a, a, a really good game and I should I should give it a go. And uh, so, yeah, eventually, by that time, as as now, it was ridiculously cheap. I mean, we're talking £5, you know, under $10 um, sort of price. Uh, and I was just... In uh, in a game and happened to see it on a shelf and picked it up, and uh, yeah, that was yeah more than two years after the release date. So, um, just check the achievements myself. Apparently, I played on release day, so yay! I saved the industry one step at a time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's actually a, a game. I don't know if any of you, well, depending if you've been reading Edge for as long as I have, but I think it was way back in 2007 I'm looking at my collection this is August 2007 here um, Edge did a, a full spread and cover story on Mirror's Edge um, had a, you know absolutely amazing cover 
uh, and that piqued my interest. And, you know, just seeing the image in, inside of that, I was like, wow, this game. You know, they were saying that you know it's a a game could be one of the games of this generation, and you know, one to to really you know keep an eye on as and upon its uh, release. So. I remember hearing it way back then, so being quite excited for it then, but it seemed to go dark for quite a while, all the way up until its release. So. But uh, yeah, day one for me, 2008. So Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, actually, because I was trying to work out when Battlefield Bad Company came out, because obviously the idea was that this game split dice uh, Bad Company 1 to Bad Company 2. Mm-hmm. This was what they did in the interim. And so therefore you'd naturally think it would be the Frostbite engine, but obviously the big deal of Frostbite 2 and Battlefield 3 was that there was this kind of vaulting parkour mechanic in that game, hmm. and therefore the Frostbite 2 engine, people thought, maybe could be used. And obviously the the, the reason that's a big deal is because actually it wasn't. Mirror's Edge had been in, in development for long enough mm-hmm. that they they hadn't, hadn't got the Frostbite engine ready at all. So, yeah, it was... Um, it's unreal, isn't it? Yeah, Unreal 3, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they obviously were working on that for a long time before they got the the final sort of build together and got the go-ahead from EA to publish it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned upon the, the rambling intro is that there was, there was a lot made about John Riccatello um, coming back to EA as CEO and, and taking the company in a whole new direction because, you know, they, they turned back into that. Um, we produce, you know, licensed products, and and that's where we make our cash. And there was a real uh, push to to bring EA back to the forefront of, you know, I would say proper games, but you know, um, gamers games, I guess. And Dead, we've already mentioned Dead Space. There's a few others around there. And Mirror's Edge is always another one that's been pushed to the forefront of that. This was, you know, Riccatero's kind of, you know, changing of the company. But he rejoined in in 2007, and the game what was released in 2000. And and eight late two thousand nine. So I, I suppose he could have. I, I would imagine the game would have been in development before then, but he gave the you know the green light for it to to maybe go full full head into production. I remember I was at university at the time. Um, this must have been two thousand and five, and I remember having a conversation with my games development and production lecturer, and he had some friends inside EA that were quite high up. He's quite respected, and. Um, he was he was telling me back at the time about how to expect a big change in the way ER yeah sorry EA are about to conduct their business. Mm. Um, he'd said that a contract had been drawn up to uh, change the path in which the company is taking things. That games no longer had to be established franchises or based upon uh, a celebrity or something that could be marketed as such. Um, and at the time, there was absolutely no signs that this was the way it was going to go. But obviously, uh, he, he was quite well informed, and he was he was telling us at the time that this was the way it was going to go. Two years before uh, uh, Riccatello mentioned this, so uh, I think it was in production, uh, not the game, but the, the the methodology in which EA were going to go with long before he even joined on board. Well, I, but I think I, you, you quite often hear about concepts within companies, you know. Being, being at least wireframed together to, to like a, a better term, uh, but needing you know the go ahead of uh, you know one of the higher ups to say yes, we all fund this beyond just um, concept. So maybe maybe he did have a bigger hand to actually get it to the forefront, and you know hmm. who knows. I, th- I think he was just a, he was brought in to be a good spokesman for the for the new way forward. Well, flash forward five years later, and now everything needs multiplayer element. So yeah. yeah. 
we could argue whether that was a, <laughs> he succeeded. I think he succeeded in the games that were produced thereafter, but they didn't really catch the the world alight uh, financially. That's such a horror. We, we're not here about the business side, so we're going to ignore that. <laughs> it's all about the games people. Uh, right, so I'm going to do a rough summation of the story. Um, or lack thereof, we we can have a discussion about that because I think the, the idea of the story is grander than maybe actually how it plays out. So give me a second and I'll, I'll try to summarise it the best I can. Mirror's Edge takes place in an unnamed dystopian city where crime is supposedly non-existent. Alas, the city's bliss is down to the totalitarian regime which monitors and influences all the communication and controls the media. Corrupt trials and convictions are the everyday normality, but with upcoming elections, mayoral candidate Robert Pope seems poised to set the city free. You play as Faith Connors, a runner, the type of courier that delivers physical objects and information uh, unseen from the official channels. The story is propelled by the assassination of Pope, allegedly by the hands of Faith's sister, Kate, who is a police officer of the establishment. She is, of course, framed how and by whom... Uh, is your main objective, which he must solve before Kate's sentence to death is carried out. What follows is a story of double-crossing by fellow runners, good cop, bad cop meetings, corrupt politicians, and ultimately you uncover a programme called Project Icarus, which is designed to eliminate the runners themselves. What's interesting about this story, actually, um, we'll get some of the more in-depth parts in a second, um, it's actually written by Rihanna Pratchett, i.e. the daughter of Terry Pratchett. Um, doing some research, she was actually quite vocal about that she'd done quite an in-depth draft of this story and that EA, or DICE, um, decided actually only to, to go with the bare bones of what she she laid out. Um, I, I would guess that maybe that's down to more the fact that they were trying to keep some of the momentum um, of the game and, and the action within the game. But, um, I mean, how, how do you guys feel that the story turned out? I, I think it's interesting but ultimately, it does feel like it really needed fleshing out beyond what that kind of summary um, plays. I think you're always going to have an issue when you have a writer, and a good one at that, puts together a complex, intricate storyline and a game development studio just sort of picks and chooses the very bare-bones outlines to that story and tries to put it into something that's comprehensible. Um, I actually know that uh, Rihanna Pratchett was furious that this was done. Um, I, my two best friends were at a wedding uh, of one of my lecturers at Teesside University again, who is friends with Rihanna Pratchett, and she was also a guest there, and they got into conversing about this. And uh, she couldn't say too much regarding it because of, of the time period, uh, but she was pretty adamant that... Uh, that they were ruining the story that she'd written, that she was very happy with what she'd done, um, that it was going to be a great story, and that ultimately they'd sort of bastardised it. Um, whether or not she'll work with them again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, and I would have loved to be there for the conversation myself. But it's, it, obviously there are issues there. Yeah, the problem with the story for me is <clears throat> the the sort of the animated cutscenes in between the levels, they're poorly mixed. I'm going to sound a bit like a snob saying this, but like the the music sort of m- merges in with the actual vocals, and I couldn't really hear what was going on. Uh, I, I had to turn subtitles on just so I could read the story as the the noisy music 
you know, basically just drowns out the the vocals. So I was missing, you know, key points of the story, which is crucial to understanding what's going on. And by the end of the game, I just, I literally didn't care. And I was struggling to remember the story about about a year later, thinking, what was that all about? I don't really remember. And I can only blame it on the, like I say, the the poor mixing of the audio in the cutscenes, unfortunately. It's funny, because I've played this game four times now. Um, and once again, just a couple of days ago for this show, and going through the, I'd completely forgot major aspects of this story. Um, and then about an hour after, I completely forgot the story again. And it wasn't only down to my, you know, it was down to my notes that I could actually formulate some sort of coherent uh, structure to it just for this very show. But it, it just, so it just seems really bare bones. I think on the face of it, it's interesting. Um, whenever you you look at like a dystopian. City. I think there's always interesting stuff you can interlay on top of that, mm. um, but they just they don't concentrate on it. It, it. it seems to be an afterthought, which is is strange because a lot of the city, a lot you know, even the gameplay plays into, um, you know, should play into certainly the the runner aspect, um, the story itself. How about you, James? Um, yeah, it's it's a strange one because I mean writers of all kinds, unless you are literally writing a book and you have purview over the edit of it, writers create scripts for TV, they create scripts for movies, they create scripts for games, and then it's up to essentially the director to decide how to present that story. And obviously, in this case, Dice looked at the story and the, all the background work that had been put into it, and they decided that they had to go light with the story to make sure that their gameplay was the center, central focus, it would have been easy to put a lot of cutscenes in, a lot of you know audio logs or, or diaries to read or, or read through or listen to, um, to try and get all of that across. And they, they obviously decided that wasn't the right way to go. So mm. it's understandable that a writer would be upset, but working in you know that this kind of industry in, in video games you kind of have to just i would say let it go obviously i'm not a writer i don't know but you've got to let that go you you do the work and and yes it's a shame that it doesn't all make it in but it's up to the people who make the games to decide exactly how they can get the story across i think i'm when sort of reading through the story again today to try and remind myself. I'm struck that um, I played Mark of the Ninja recently. It seems like that kind of a story or something like, I don't know, Shadow Complex, where actually the story that's being told in the game is really quite simple. It's just what is the character's motivation now? What's the inciting incident? And what's going to fall out from that? And all the sort of background about the world and everything kind of has to be let go, which is exactly what happened in Shadow Complex. There was a lot of background and a a big deal made about um, Orson Scott Card writing um, this whole universe that Shadow Complex was going to fit into. And there would be novels beforehand and novels afterwards and all that sort of thing. Ultimately, it, it has a lot of bearing on how the creators tackle the game and which parts of the story they show. But as the player playing the game, you see the story that's presented to you. And so I think Mirror's Edge comes off as simplistic. And in in some ways, it's unfair, obviously, to the person who wrote the story. But in other ways, that kind of wasn't the point of the game. Um, something it's, like It's funny that you say simplistic, though, because I, I don't I wouldn't level simplicity at the story. Because I, I think it's it's got some interesting themes running throughout it. Mm. I just 
I think bare bones would better describe um, mm. the way they gave it treatment because I think sim- yeah. simplistic is here have this gun shoot a load of people we won the war yay um, um, y- yes and no I think in terms of in terms of video games yes probably you're right you you don't need a, a story beyond here's a gun there's someone shooting at you shoot back but that's not really a story that's just what's happening in a, any given moment um so so when, when i say simplistic if you look at the story and, and the game can be run through in sort of well even on a first playthrough sort of five hours maybe mm-hmm. if you've played through a number of times you can probably get down to two three hours something like that that's a, an elongated movie length and it's got the story of a movie but a lot of the sort of character interactions taken out because obviously a lot of the time is spent running and faith's not interacting with anyone in a in any sense of dialogue during those times really so it's it's got you know if you actually look at what happens there's a couple of twists and turns but for the most part it's inciting incident is the murder of robert pope um and then faith has to work out a way to clear her sister's name throughout the game there's not a lot more than that going on in terms of what a player needs to know to play the game well yeah there, there's a lot of crossing of different um sections of society which quite you know by the end of it i think i was even though i would played it that many times i'm still confused how it pans out to be the one guy that essentially towards the end of the game is is the master um you know villain um mm. it's yeah that's, yeah that's a big problem with this game in terms of dystopia it feels kind of like a my first dystopia kind of story like you got <laughs> you got the the evil government and we only know that they're evil because faith tells us that they are we don't we never actually see what the villains whoever the villains are in the game what they actually do the city looks really yeah. nice you know you never really see anything <laughs> yeah yeah you never really see anything that's in actually fact, wrong when, you, um, when you're in the high rises you can look down and see just people walking and doing yeah. their everyday business except for when you're running through the mall and there's literally no one there or wherever you're actually <laughs> going around there's yeah. no one around but yeah it just it feels like there's no clear villain there's no real threat mm. It's quite the opposite to Half-Life 2, which offers you a dystopian city, like in City 17, mm-hmm. where as soon as you get off the train in Half-Life 2, you see the, the Combine being absolute pricks to the people around you, mm-hmm. and Dr. Breen on the screen giving his propaganda nonsense. Mm-hmm. But in this game, it's just sort of like, okay, they're, they're called Blues? Yeah, all right, they're called Blues. Um, they're shooting at me, so I better run. And that's pretty much all you get. There is a bit more to it than that, but that's what I took away from it. Yeah, I... I it... <laughs> Like many aspects of this game that we're bringing up to talk about, it, it feels slightly underbaked. Um, also, um, Darren, you mentioned about how they're presented via, I want to say cartoon, but animated um, cutscenes. Because uh, one of my one of my theories was that maybe they didn't want the story getting in the way of uh, you know the flow of the game. Yeah, I found that going into the animated cutscenes um, kind of broke the flow of the game for me anyway. Uh, purely because they were so different from what you were experiencing in, in the main body of the game. The bummer of that is that the actual in-game engine looks really good. So mm-hmm. if they would have kept the story in that in-game engine, it would have been it probably might, might not have broken up as bad. Yeah, I think it's obviously to keep costs down. Um, sure, I can't yeah. remember what other games do that, but I think it was Dead Space One. They had sort of like a weird. No, nah, I'm, I'm, nah, I'm saying that wrong. There's there was another game of around about that time, maybe. Infamous. Oh, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of them. Uh, but there was a lot of games around about that time where they were using these sort of cartoon animated 
look sort of like it looked like they were just dragging and dropping um you know the graphics along the screen to sort of animate them sort of like stop motion puppeteering and it just looks weird like yeah it's obviously to keep the cost down to stop it from ballooning off into the stratosphere but yeah maybe they should have just kept it all in game like you say Sean and but even though their faces are pretty Halo-esque and ugly <laughs> um, <laughs> animation isn't great it, yeah. nah, I'd rather have it in game than these weird sort of flash animation cutscenes I, I think cost's probably one thing but I think the bigger thing's probably um, resources in terms of time and and um, hours personnel hours spent on the game because this game only came out what five months after Bad Company so hmm. to say that it started development before Frostbite was complete and didn't come out until after Bad Company was already released, obviously the amount of time they could put into the game is relatively limited and the number of people they're going to be able to spare to design and render cutscenes, even though they're in-engine, it's probably just not yeah. possible. Whereas getting someone to animate, be it CGI or be it hand-drawn, whatever the case, getting someone to just animate storyboards essentially is a relatively resource light thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't need many hands on that once you've got an artist to kind of uh, set the tone for what the, the cutscene's going to look like. I, I like the way you phrased that. It almost made it sound like it was some sort of side project rather than a, a main. Well, I mean, it, I, co- I compared it to two downloadable games, and when you look at I mean, a lot of people equate um, sort of how good a game is to the number of hours of enjoyment you get out of it, and there are a lot of downloadable games that run longer than Mirror's Edge does, you know, and all right, plenty of first-person shooters or plenty of, of AAA games um, run to sort of five or six hours for their, their campaign, but with with Mirror's Edge, I get that kind of feeling from it, um, that it's it's too big for a downloadable game. It's too ambitious for a downloadable game, but it's got that kind of feel to it to me. Not not in any disparaging way. It just that's the way it feels to me. No, I'd agree with that. I'd, I could imagine in t- if it came out in today's sort of market, it would be a Walking Dead episode. You know, on a monthly basis, mm. like play one chapter for a certain small fee of like four hundred points, and then. Or whatever, whatever platform you're playing Stop it on, and then and ask their games, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it suits some games better, like Eternal mm. Darkness. Maybe I, I think The Walking Dead has done a has done an episodic right and how it should be presented, and I think a lot of games could learn from that nowadays. True, but I, I, I see, I do see Mirror's Edge as a as a whole. Um, you know, obviously it has aspects which could could tie it together a lot better than than the uh, than what we have now. But 2007 was. A different time for mm-hmm. for a you know a release such as this to be put on a, a downloadable service. We've come a, a long way since then. Um, but yeah, no, going back to what James said, like side project, I I've never really seen it that way before. But I can I can see how that could happen. You know, because obviously Dice, you know, they are famous for Battlefield, mm-hmm. um, and clearly that has to be the number one priority for that team is to to get the franchise right um, and, and make back the money. And it, it does feel. Like they were given a, a bit of a go ahead and say, okay, yeah, you can you can play with this this idea, but don't spend too much time and money in it. Make sure you get that battlefield done correct. Mm. Interesting. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the look um, because it is rather striking outside of the animated um, story scenes. Um, the look of this game, I've heard many people refer to it as an Apple advert. Um, <laughs> Which I don't think is unfair, uh, and by that they they mean smooth, straight, clean lines, um, uh-huh. white, very white, white yeah, very, very stark, 
very stark, but also very stylized and, and also colourful at the same time, which is an odd combination, but utterly unique uh, as well. So, Carl, look, engaging for you? I adore the look of this game. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Unreal Engine, and it's irked me for many, many years that people say all Unreal games look the same. It's a complete mm. fallacy. Um, Mirror's Edge certainly proves that. Uh, you could literally show a screenshot to any person on the planet and they couldn't tell you what game engine that's run it, running on. Um, I do know from a design point of view and friends that perhaps a focus on one specific colour isn't the smartest idea because I do have friends that did have issues with colour blindness. Mm. Um, it's specifically red, that they can't see red. Um, and anyone who knows, we, we've mentioned on this podcast before how certain games direct the user through the usage of light. This game directs people through the usage of the colour red. Um, you see that, that that that's a point that you can either vault from, leap up, run to, collect. Um, creating a, a method where a user can't use any of that could certainly lend to some frustration. But that aside, if you if you step back from that on a total visual appeal level, um, it's stunning. It's unlike anything we'd probably seen before it. It's certainly unlike anything we've seen since. Um, and it, and it's rightly regarded as as uh, very cultish for its styling. Um, it's it's utterly beautiful. There's a definite sense of place with uh, the unnamed city. I was playing it today uh, just to check out the game before I talk about it, and you, you can just stand there and just observe the world. And while there's not much going on in terms of like. There are, there are a few people down below, you know, walking around and stuff. But when you just look up in the sky and you see the plane flying over you and, the, you know, the tall buildings that just are shimmering the white sun. Oh, not the white sun, you know, all the sun just off the uh, the, the mirror's edge, as they call it. Um, <laughs> yeah, terrible. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, Let's talk about that it, name, Jesus. But it sort of... I mentioned earlier City 17 and how it does a bad job of making you realise the world. It definitely feels like a place like City 17. Uh, it actually feels like a, like I say, like a, it, it's what I imagine Sweden to be like if I went there. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. I just imagine like just beautiful sunshine, just a nice peaceful environment without the guns and the... I think you're going to be very disappointed, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to say most of the game takes place... Um, on top of the high rises but then actually it doesn't does it there's there's a fair bit of game that, that takes place on the ground mm-hmm. um, and and but the most you know, the most visually is, uh, impressive and I guess what the game has become famous for is that a huge majority of the game is actually set on top of high rises and you need to be jumping between tower blocks uh, and vaulting fences and you have the wind in, in your hair and uh, there's a real sense of height there obviously when you fall off a ledge there's a, a fairly long uh, well, she flaps her arms and you hear the wind moving past your ears and then suddenly the crunching <sighs> of bones yeah. if you splatter on the ground. That really gives me the the shivers. I did it today where I fell off accident and I started just shivers because the way they make the camera shake and you see her arms mm-hmm. flailing around and like the audio sort of wobbles and she's... Mm-hmm. Oh, it really gives me that horrible feeling that I do when I'm in water in video games. I just don't like it. And that's a, that's like a credit to how well it, it's designed. You it's know what odd, I mean? isn't Actually. it? Because, I mean, ultimately it feels like a, there's a lot of verticality to the gameplay even if you are essentially still just running along the ground purely because 
you know, your, your mind is, well, I'm on top of a high rise, so I'm in a really high place. Um, even when you just, if you were to take those obstacles courses and put them on the, on the floor, you'd feel, oh, like I'm just moving along the ground. It's, it's quite a, a clever trick they pull. Yeah. They, they do, they do some clever things with the, um, with visual, I guess it's visual effects and, and, um, audio effects to try and trick your senses into seeing and hearing what they, what they would expect if, if you were actually up that high. You know, if you look over the edge of a building, it's sort of blurry down below. You can't really make it out, which gives you kind of a sense of, um, of vertigo almost, you know, and, and as you say, when you trip off the end, I mean, the, the wind's rushing all the time, but when you trip off the edge or, or fall off the edge, you, the audio starts to wobble, the, the, you get this blurred effect, like, like you're losing consciousness, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing, and it really makes you feel the, the height that you're at, you know, you really do feel like um, you are in this precarious situation and perched on top of a real tall building. Um, Eight. It uses some very good stylistic points to make you focus on very specific moments of gameplay, and that's exactly what the audio is doing. Is mm. it's it's removing you from everything that the world was into that moment of your failure, so you actually feel a complete immersion into your own mistake. It's very clever. Yeah, one of the things about the verticality too is that I think I saw Gary on the Gary Blower on the forums talking about how. They changed the camera from a first-person perspective. They're usually on your chest in most games, and in this one they put it up mm-hmm. kind of closer to where your eyes would actually be mm-hmm. to kind of help with the... When you look down at your feet, it kind of feels like you're looking down at the full body rather than just mm-hmm. looking at shoes, you know? Yeah, I mean, to, to talk about that, actually, um, James, you want to look at the couple of correspondence we got here, which we'll, we'll talk about the feel of the game and exactly what you do on top of these rooftops. But uh, this this made me chuckle because they both state two completely different things. Um, yeah, shall I start off reading, yeah, uh, go, reading Gary. Ga- Gary's, uh, Gary's um, sort of paragraph? Yep. Um, he says, Mirror's Edge made uh, the first-person parkour completely immersive by moving the focal point of the camera up from chest height, um, as Sean said and as Gary said, as it is with most FPSs, to actually eye level, which is necessary to make free-running work and is no doubt one of the reasons why the gunplay, if you're daft enough to use the guns, feels so wrong. Um, it's not what we've been programmed to expect from an FPS. More immersive um, was that this was achieved without nausea-inducing motion sickness often associated with higher-head camera. Um, and then it, another another post, in, as you said, Tony, complete counterpoint to that is, uh, Craman Edge said um, he'd like to submit a three-word review, which will, he'll come up again later, mm-hmm. um, even though he, uh, I haven't played it, Vomit after demo. Vomited after demo, sorry. Um, So he says, I don't often get motion sickness from games. Watching someone else play a first-person shooter sometimes makes me a little dizzy. And nothing has ever made me as sick as fast as the Mirror's Edge demo did. I think it was the sheer amount of head camera movement and especially the tilting sideways motion. Um, It was immensely disappointing as I really liked the stark clean look of the screens and artwork that was being released in the build-up to release and was excited to play this interesting original looking game i consider it the one that got away that's such a shame mm. yeah yeah mm. but um, two it, very different in points yeah mm-hmm. uh, the, this the same friend who who sort of badgered me a little bit to play it and very very big thanks to to him graham um he suffered a little bit i i seem to remember motion sickness during the demo and they um 
Dice made a big deal of the fact that they put this. It's a very tiny reticle, but it's yeah. always present in the middle of the screen because they'd they'd actually had zero HUD um, and and no reticle in the middle. So the problem with that is you don't have a focal point. There's nothing to focus on, and so you can start to feel like you're sort of swimming. Is is the way most people refer to it. Um, and and what some people do if they're dancing and start getting motion sick is they'll actually just focus on one point and keep staring at it so that it remains fixed, although their body is obviously moving. And that was the idea behind putting this tiny little reticle in, in the screen. And it seemed to just do enough for most people, but obviously Kramer Edge suffered despite that. So He's not the only one I have heard. A yeah, number of people yeah. have that, that very complaint. Uh, but it's interesting what um, Gary talked about, how they did try to compensate for, for yeah. what that feeling would have been if the camera was elsewhere. I mean, it's quite it's quite interesting regarding the whole, you know, motion sickness. Uh, it's obviously nothing new in gaming, but I believe it is actually Gary Blower uh, who is made motion sick, uh, who suffers motion sickness when playing games in the Source engine, hmm. um, which is obviously one of the more popular engines for first-person hmm. games. Uh, with Half-Life 2 and, and so forth, um, where something that perhaps, well, certainly has more movement in it in Mirror's Edge, he's completely fine with. Um, I personally never had any problems, but I certainly think it's quite interesting that, you know, Gary, having played it so many times, also finds Mirror's Edge fine, but suffers with mm. some other titles. So let's talk about why this game may actually may make you feel sick. Um, it tries something pretty unique um when i think of first person platforming games or at least first person platforming i I go all the way back to when i first tried it out in half-life trying to stack boxes and jump up uh, trying to get through little areas and that was a complete and utter disaster um and really ever since then yes we've had of later date uh, something like battlefield or you know once again where you can vault over stuff i mean that's become a, a fairly commonplace technique used in first person games but platforming games um, pure platforming games I can't think of another one I can think of something like Breakdown which was um, you know fisticuffs you know first person fighting um, which kind of made me feel motion sickness in fact um, but something that tries what Mirror's Edge does I I think it's pretty unique now I may be wrong there uh, Portal's the big one yeah. um, it's, it's obviously platforming I think the difference is and when you get platforming sections and other first-person games, you don't have to have momentum. Generally, you can you can just you have to time your jumps properly, and you have to make sure you're at the edge of one platform to jump and reach the next, or so on and so forth. But you don't necessarily always have to be doing a running jump to make the jump and continue your movement. It's the flowing momentum that you have to have in Mirror's Edge. You have to be able to string moves together, um, and I think that's a bit different to to yeah, anyth- anything that's been done in first person platforming. When I think of Portal, I, I think they use the the portals a lot of the time to get away from just a pure yeah. jumping up to a place, you know, and, and moving from I would say box from box, but you know, that's essentially what these games are. Hmm. Uh, that you know, anything that revolves you getting from one side of the room to the other in you know in, in ultra quick time can be done by placing two portals and, and getting velocity through that yeah. rather than like you, you, know, you just said, you know, moving the the character and actually gaining velocity for yourself, uh, self movement. So, but now you are correct that that's probably the the best other example. But 
outside of those? There's- Metroid Prime definitely does first-person platforming. Um, it was one of the games where people, like journalists, were like saying, this is how you do first-person platforming. And what <laughs> Retro Studios did was they allowed the camera to tilt automatically slightly downwards so you could sort of see where you were you were going to land. Uh, every time you jumped, you know, you'd, you'd hear the gas from a suit kick off and the camera would automatically tilt and you'd know where you were landing. Um, I can't really think of any other games that... I mean, Turok did it really badly on oh, the Oh, have done it badly. <laughs> yeah, it's just mental. So, they, you know, the dice were stepping outside into a pretty uncharted territory. Oh. This game was sort of pitched as free run, the free-running game. In fact, I think for a, for a while, a bit like um, Districts um, 13, um, being the that for a long time was known as the free-running movie, and this was sort of known as the free-running game. Mm-hmm. Um and the reason for that was that we'd had, I mean, Assassin's Creed was 2007, so we'd had third-person parkour, but again, this that's a very different thing where very, actually yeah. you hold down a button and run, and more or less you're going to be okay. In this, you really have to be on top of it. I mean, um, Darren, you were saying that, you know, the few times you felt to your death really sort of affected you. I had to lose that. I mean, within the demo, I had to lose that because... I made so many mistakes that I just got used to seeing that screen and seeing failed <laughs> pop up on the screen. You, it's you like, can't tell me you didn't look away from the screen a number of times, though. No, I, honestly, I got used to it and I put it, I put it on today and went through the uh, just the training level and still managed to to screw up. The training level's hard, <laughs> <laughs> and, but, I, but I still managed to screw up either because my jumps weren't quite lined up right or. Hmm. Um, or because my pathfinding just, for some reason, even with the red highlights, the pathfinding I found quite tough, and I didn't yeah. always th- feel like there was a there was a way to get around that and create my own path through it. But uh, that's a separate discussion. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I had to get used to that animation of falling off the building and just sort of take a sigh and right have another go, and it really sort of affected the flow of a couple of patches through the game for me well to bring it back a little for, for yeah. people that haven't actually uh, played Mirror's Edge um, the whole retro demeure isn't that the word for the, the reason for this game is to um, well we can talk about first person parkour so it, if you're a third person platformer of, of course you would be jumping from area to area um, we've all played those type, you know, those games there's, there's hundreds of them if not thousands of third person platformers um, but this being in first person you do you need to cross chasms whether it be on top of uh, rooftops you need to uh, wall run and uh, jump to um, say pipes on the side of the wall you need to you know climb up and get onto cranes make huge you know, death-defying jumps and grab just in time, and it being in first-person uh, view really does an, uh, add a sense of unusualness. You you haven't really seen it before, and we've all played hundreds of first-person shooting games or first-person games, but very uh, very rarely do you find yourself jumping off the the size of you know, won't be cliffs, the size of buildings, and grabbing onto things at the very last second out, outside of a first-person a third-person view. So I found I found it to be pretty utterly unique back then, and even playing for it now, um, I still get a sense of uh, you know euphoric and, and rush as I go off a, a ledge, you know, not 100% knowing with that is the direction I should mm-hmm. be taking. It's the, the it's the first person role that you don't really see in any game other than Mirror's Edge that 
it really makes you understand what this game is all about. Like, because usually when a game goes into like a, into a roll animation, it'll pull the camera out and you'll see the character rolling mm-hmm. on your screen. But Mirror's Edge just keeps it in yeah. the camera, and like, I don't know what I'm looking at at that time, but I it, <laughs> ground I, I think just, sky ground. <laughs> it's just just weird. Like, and I, you learn to just block it out after a while. But there'll be one time where you will just land a roll, and you're like, oh god, that really, that really, that's really jarring for that split second. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that being a, a big cause of the motion sickness because. There's a lot of yeah. There's, there's a lot of hype in, in the role, and when you're grabbing onto a pipe and you're looking over to the left and you see another pipe there, it's it is just. I think, like you say, breakdown was the only one that sort of really kept you entirely in the first person uh, perspective. But uh, Mirror's Edge just, just dedicates its whole engine it's, to it. It seems it's got a whole number of tricks up its sleeve to keep you stuck within that first person view. Um, like you say, if you pull the L trigger on the 360 pad, for example, as you land on the ground, you will go into a roll. Um, you have a, a number of other tricks up your sleeve, so you can wall run if you hold down RB, LB, LB, I think, LB, isn't it? Yeah. Um, LB, yeah. You jump with the LB, which I've heard a number of people complain that was a bit weird as well, but it, it makes sense in context of how the rest of the controls are laid out. So you, you can jump and vault obstacles with LB. Um, a lot of that's to do with if you've got the inertia of running, um, you can jump them at a, a greater pace. If you come to a, uh, for instance, a pipe that is across your, your mid-rift body line, you can pull the right trigger and you can, as long as you've got enough immersion, inertia, you can slide underneath that pipe and keep on going. Um, you then have a, a number of other multiple more complex tricks so you can go from a wall run with the lb turn halfway across that wall run with rb um, which then faces the opposite way and just between that split second of you falling because you've lost all uh, inertia you can then jump again up to a different higher platform or a platform that's the opposite side of where you are um so it's, I, I think it's, the, the control scheme, scheme is relatively simple, but also actually quite hard and frustrating, I've heard, for many people. How did you get on with it? Personally, for me, because um, we, you know, we play games all the time, I can, I, I can get quite adapted to new control schemes, and this is absolutely bonkers when you think about it. It is mainly shoulder buttons, all four shoulder buttons give you your actions like you said Tony mm-hmm. and like no other game's really done that. It makes sense because like, LB is your upward motion uh, your L trigger is your downward motion, and that's like if you're holding a pad now, which I am. Like the L trigger is the one at the bottom because the pad's sort of at a horizontal level, and it, it makes sense. And you've got your right trigger to punch, and then your RB to sort of do a left for dead on 360 style spin around, which is very useful when it comes to speed runs. Um, yeah, the control schemes are utterly bonkers, and I did look to see if there was any other way of like actually using the face buttons to jump and slide and duck and stuff, but there's nothing at all really. I couldn't see any other uh, more orthodox methods of controlling <laughs> faith. It is really unorthodox. And I'm not saying that's I'm not saying it's hard, I'm not saying it's complicated. It's just really unorthodox. Yeah, well for me I um it, it took a while to to pick up on not so much just jumping and ducking, but uh the 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 one that you were t- talking about a second ago where you run along the wall, turn and jump. Took yeah. forever. Mm. I just couldn't even begin to figure it out until about halfway through the game I finally picked up on it. But there's one on the uh, on PS3, uh, this was back when everybody was trying to stick six axis into everything, and so you know oh. when you yeah you'd walk along the pipe and oh, the balancing gosh. there you'd have to use a six axis, which I found out later that you can turn off, but they don't tell you that unless you just dig through <laughs> the options. So the, the whole, I recently come across that in playing uh, Uncharted on Vita. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. 
So on the 360 controller, you just move left or right of the stick. Yeah, yeah. Balance, yeah. Don't say just like it's easy, Tony. I still... F- I literally, <laughs> training area, fell off four times in a row that first bike you've well, got to walk across. I can't... I, I think... I just cannot get a handle on it. I, I, I think the training area actually was a mistake by um, DICE. Because what they do, they... they they give the player everything that they will need to use for the entirety of the game. Now, for instance, the LBRBLB um, maneuver uh, gets used a little bit later in the game. I think it's like four or five levels in later into the game. Hmm. Um, but by which time, I mean, that's that maybe two hours in, you've forgot, completely forgotten that technique. Yeah. So you find yourself come up to this area and clearly you know that you need to get higher. But you're looking at the environment going, I have no idea how I get there. And uh, through multiple times of me dying, I was like, ah, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I think I, I probably went off something much too early at the time. Nobody was sticking videos up. But, um, you know, just through brute force, I think I ended up rem- reminding myself of actually that there was this advanced technique which I'd completely forgotten about now. Which... Once you've played through the games a number of times, you find yourself using um, a lot prior to when it's actually uh, compulsory to use that technique because it is actually handy. But it, I feel like as a tutorial area that they kind of messed up a little bit there. I think it's a case where what Darren said's right. It, the the theory in the controls is there, and it's for you to implement them. Um, I personally didn't have any issues with the control scheme in the game it feels tough at first but you know moving console to console feels tough at first playing guitar hero at first is tough you just get used to it and that's exactly what mirror's edge does it goes from feeling a game that feels tough and almost unfriendly to play to a game that feels so incredibly natural that it everything is just becomes complete instinct to press those buttons to perform those moves um, with you know as to, there's a, such a naturalness to it that I can't really think any other game has gotten this maybe certainly not this generation if ever um, and when you go on a run and you you hit everything and it feels the perfect sprint and you've got the wind literally whipping through your, your speakers um, feeling like you're running forwards there's nothing quite like it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, that, and that naturalness you you bring up actually is a blessing and a curse, I think. Because when you have that moment, when you are on that perfect run that you pull the L trigger and you roll just at the perfect time, you slide underneath an obstacle, you jump a death-defying jump and get to the other side and there isn't a break within that movement and you know the, the sound does block out. It's amazing. Perfect, I would even say. One of the most unique experiences you can have in gaming this generation, if not of all time. Then, all of a sudden, it can completely be broken by either bad guidance from the game, or combat, or a number of things where you just get that one bit wrong, and everything comes crashing to a halt, and it's almost like everything that you've left behind you comes flying past your face, and like, you know, cups and spoons and tins and saucers kind of smash past your head, as you go, oh, I've come to an end. And that's where you've nailed it completely, Tony. That is why I'm sure I will have many disagreements with people, because everybody focuses on the story. The story is not the game. Yeah. The game is the time trials and the speedruns. Mm-hmm. 
and the story was put in there to appease people buying a £40 product. But, but the game is the game, and they felt that story was there, so they added it. If, if they didn't want it, then don't put it in there. So we have but, to... But anybody who sticks with the game will know that time trial and speedruns is where this game well, shines, and this is where it is an unmatched experience. I, I shall jump onto that a bit later on, as and when we talk about the DLC, because that focuses heavily on that as well. Um, but I want, what I will say is, you know, to have that experience, um, the game actually does do a, a number of unique tricks. What you can do uh, on the 360, I assume, uh, Sean, you played this on the PS3. Um, you press the B button on, on the 360, and it, it points Faith's head in the general direction in which you should be heading. Um, so that I think that's. Well, it's part of the runner's vision. The other part of the runner's vision is that um, things around you are color-coded red. So if it's of of real importance, so say there's a platform that clearly, if you were to jump, you'd think you were just going to die because there's nothing on the other side of it. And it may be a building that's slightly low, you know, below that area. You wouldn't naturally just go, oh, I'm going to jump off this edge. But they entice you with the runner's vision by having a very stark white environment or bright green or bright blue whatever area you may be in and then having this vision to say okay you need to jump off there i know it's ridiculous and i know it seems stupid but you need to jump there and that catches your eye and it's it's very clever because quite often you you do find yourself heading in the right direction even if the red stuff isn't there the the, the environments are pretty well laid out like it's actually quite a although in speed runs you find that um, there's many routes you can take, but um, playing it through the first time, it, it feels quite a linear route that you can just go this way. Um, so yeah, I, I think they they implement the sense of direction um, quite well. I find that B button function when I'm running at full speed is a, is a is a bad thing to do because you suddenly just flip a head around and you're like, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't do that while I'm sprinting <laughs> because now I'm you know falling off the side of a building. I, I like the idea of being pointed in the right direction, but. I wouldn't mind an option instead of her moving her whole body and head to see where where you need to go. Maybe ah oh no, but maybe just put a little dot, not another dot, but like a little marker on the actual... strobe lines on the floor. Do you? <laughs> no, I just want, I just want like a little waypoint, like a Halo style waypoint, just so I... that takes away from the interface that they didn't yeah, want on yeah, there, though, isn't it? You could hear the sigh of my voice when I was thought about it, but I don't know, like the idea of literally swinging my whole body around it. it, it it hit and it missed for me. Like it worked when I was stood still or moving quite slowly or hanging from a side of a building. But when I was going at full speed, thinking, "Where's the door? Where's the door? Oh, is that door going to turn red now? No, there's two doors. Which one?" And then she'd suddenly swing her head around to the left, and I'd accidentally bump into a fence, electrified fence. Well, I think <laughs> you know that's I mean? to add of... the you know that adds the the panic into the game mm. when you when you're being chased. You know, it's all like I've mentioned earlier. It's all about putting those feelings in that very moment on the player. And when That's you have point. people chasing you and you ha- you do come into a blind panic of where do I go, where do mm-hmm. I go, and you just try mm-hmm. and get away, that's what you would be doing in, in that moment. And when when it's less open, it adds that element of discovery into the game of, you know, discovering these new areas and entering them blind, you know, like, like, like she would. She's breaking through buildings. She's mm-hmm. going through ways that she shouldn't be doing. She's doing something that's illegal. And... In, in in doing so, she's discovering these areas and you as the player controlling her are doing the same. Ah, that's a really good point. It's actually quite an often brought up criticism about how the game has got this stop-start nature to it. But I, I tend to agree with you a little bit there, Carl, that I think without 
the the ability to slow things down and okay when you when you do fail at one of your brilliant runs you know it, it it is quite jarring but i think without having those moments the the moments where you've got everything perfect wouldn't be half as effective and you know just running through a game non-stop for the entirety of the game and not slowing down at any point i think it would have been fun but also you know quite hollow absolutely agree yeah, I I would agree absolutely. The only thing I would say is, and I think it's just by virtue of this being Dice's first attempt with something that they just had an inkling would work and were trying. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, th- there's a big difference between thinking, crap, where am I going? There's someone behind me shooting. I need to get out of the way. And, and finding your own route through this open or semi-open environment and actually working it out. And the panic when you don't quite know and you're maybe getting it wrong. But when it comes to a grinding halt and I'm literally stood there looking around me thinking, well, I can't see anything red. There's guys behind me, but I might have mm-hmm. to go back that way. And literally I am lost and I'm just stood there because I've no idea which way to go. Th- th- there's there's obviously a lot of other games do this by lighting and that sort of thing. When you're moving so fast as you are in Mirror's Edge, it's not always possible to make sure the player sees these cues that they've got around the place. But there, there's a couple of particular spots. One of them was this um, in, enclosed room. It was almost like a, a internal garden, I seem to remember it. And what you have to do is leap up a box, um, go up the wall, turn, and then jump through... Um, a, a pane of glass onto mm-hmm. a walkway up above. I can't remember which chapter. I want to say it's chapter five, but I'm not entirely sure of that. I think that's number four. The one. You're yeah, it about. might be. And just playing and today. Just after there's a checkpoint right as you get into there, and like ten seconds later, there's three guys going to come in after you and start shooting you. Mm-hmm. Even oh, after I worked yeah. out where I was supposed to go, I couldn't get it to break the the glass, so I ended up just running around this area trying to work out where I was supposed to go. Tried doing getting through that window, it wouldn't work, and it got really frustrating. So I think it's just by virtue of it being a, their first attempt at doing something that's very, very difficult to do, there were a few spots in the game where level design didn't I, quite work, is I, all I would I, say. No, and I, I agree with that. I am... Um... I don't know if anyone here has played it on hard. I think Carl yeah. probably has. Um, yeah, I have. Yeah. They, they actually take away the red. Um, <laughs> the red. So huh? it's left to the player. I mean, normally you wouldn't attempt hard straight off um, no. and just work out where you're going by yourself. But they take away the red. So um, it is just bare bones, the white environment. And you, you do have to concentrate a lot more and work out where you're going. Con- conversely, though, I think with easy, they probably don't go far enough. I, you know... Maybe it could have been game-breaking in, in some degree, but I think with e- the easy setting, they probably should have colour-coded every single jump in red just to say, this is the way, this is the way. And, you know, you are playing on the lower difficulty, so you want just a, an easier ride. Um, and I know in, in particular those those moments where you're being chased is is quite frustrating for a number of people because the, the pressure aspect of trying to get where you need to go... Um, and not a hundred percent. Yeah, if you're jumping off the ledge and, and going in the wrong direction, they should have probably done a lot better um, direction in, in those moments. But having played it for a fourth time, I know exactly where I'm going though now. Yeah. And those chase moments are actually brilliant. So maybe Dice got themselves a little bit kind of oh, we played this game a number of times and, and lost a little bit of focus of new players. I mean, it's easy. It's easy to be clumsy in design like that, as, as yeah. we've mentioned several times on this show. But what Mirror's Edge 
does do well is it pushes the level of adrenaline you feel in all chases that even if you fail and something becomes frustrating to the point of I don't know where I'm going mm -hmm. the you immediately replay it for that buzz come you know the opposite of that would be something I experienced playing Uncharted 3, which very early in the game you're on a rooftop chase where you've got to run across some buildings where you don't feel any adrenaline, but there is no direction in where you're supposed to be running and you all, a few times I ended up running in the guards. That became frustrating because I had no adrenaline to push me on to what made me want mm. to succeed at that section, whereas, obviously, like I say, Mirror's Edge did. Yeah, and and I think the... I think dice certainly get away with it because you're absolutely right, Carl. The moments when you string it together and when you first time through a, a maybe a tough section, maybe maybe not, but first time through the section, you nail it absolutely superbly. You do all the moves exactly as you want to, and you get to where you're going. That high is is worth persevering with some of the areas mm -hmm. where but mainly because you haven't spotted what they've put in front of of you to to lead you. You failed as a runner. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So it's just that there were a couple of areas where the frustration got a bit beyond yeah. that adrenaline and that panic, and, and it got to, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's you're absolutely right. It's completely worth it because the adrenaline you feel, um, and the first-person view helps with this, you know, it really feels like it's you running, even though, it, you know, for all of us, we're males as a female character. It doesn't feel like you're controlling a character. It feels like you are the one who is running in these situations. And um, that adrenaline and the panic and the fear, really, is is absolutely key to that. So, yeah. The pinnacle of that is, for me, the pinnacle of that, sorry, is the, the train sequence where you're on yeah. top of the train and the signs are coming screaming at you. Yeah. And there's a moment where I think the train stops and you're told to get off because there's another train mm -hmm. literally screaming towards you. And that, the reason why that sticks out in my mind is because, like Carl said, that the adrenaline was pumping through me. And with most games, you're just like, oh, it's just a game, I'll make it in time. But with this one, because it's all in first person entirely, you're not, and you know, you're really feeling the momentum of the character. You, you sort of feel like, well, you know, I need to, I need to survive. Like, because like, with most games, you're just like, ah, oh, if I die, I'll just respawn. But with it, with, you know, when you, yeah, <laughs> yeah when, when you're Faith, you're like, no, I, I really need to get to that door that, you know, that is red and I need to get through it before this train crushes me. And that still stands out. It's one of the best gaming moments this generation. There's a couple of moments as well that I want to highlight before we get to a number of the criticisms I got for the game as well. Um, there's, if I say the huge crane jump, mm -hmm. um, so, so you, you get this huge red crane in the distance and eventually oh. you get the, you know, the ability to run up to it and then jump from the top of this crane down to a, it's, it's almost Assassin's Creed style, down to this mat, isn't it? Actually down the zip wire. Um, mm. But it, that's you know that's it's quite a moment because the, the height, the verticality of that, and you're, you're going quite a long way down, and you've been seeing this thing in the distance. That's very good, and probably my favourite part of the entirety of the game is actually when it, strangely, for all the, the kinetic energy that I've been talking about, is actually when it brings something down to uh, a lot steadier, normal pace that would almost class as a platforming pace um, which is, there's a level I think you can call it the atrium which is this huge room um, or building site um, where you have to travel, I think it must be about six floors up um, and you have to negotiate your way slowly and steadily and carefully up through these um, these different walls and doing all the different manoeuvres you've learnt as faith up the side of this, this you know, huge building um, 
and it, like I say, it's, it's a lot slower, slower pace than the rest of the game. I've heard a number of people being very frustrated because you can fall off if you ha- if you don't know all the the skills, if you don't use the skills to your disposal. But to me, I just I just loved it. I mean, that that comes back down to the, you know, should you have guns in this game or not, which we'll get into straight after this. But um, you know, I I loved the whole first person platforming aspect out with that outside of the actual kinetic energy side. That atrium bit that you mentioned is absolutely fantastic. And that, it's not that it's slow or paced in any way. It's if you play any of the time trials or watch any of the time trials, you realise the ways that you never even thought to get up there quickly. <laughs> um, and between the challenge of nailing that, and I know because I've had, I've had full conversations with many people, including Paul Rooney, who we had on the podcast, about that specific moment. Um, and there's also the, the, the sewers, which again on speedruns, there are ways that you just don't even see through many playthroughs of that game. That that's why they stick out in my mind more than perhaps what Darren mentioned that train bit, which is maybe one of a very few handfuls of times in any game I've ever let out. You know, a sigh of relief and an actual few, <laughs> but getting stuff right is just magical the one thing that we haven't mentioned surprisingly yet is the music and the music in that atrium sequence is perfect because it's 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 just you jumping around and that's it there's no mm-hmm. nobody chasing you no shooting no nothing and so this, the music's very subdued and calm there's no heavy drums or anything and it's very ambient and really adds a lot to that moment yeah just faith faith versus yeah, just the jumping. environment right. itself yeah yep. stick out for the team good or bad <laughs> well good i mean uh, let's i mean let's jump on there's, there's a number of criticisms um this game gathers from or garners from uh, from a number of people and i think the the main one is the combat um there, there's many people that say this game shouldn't have any combat in it whatsoever um or Faith shouldn't have the ability to shoot guns. You could argue she barely has the ability to shoot guns. Um, so how how do you guys feel about that? I mean, are you one of these people that say this game should be completely lacking combat and maybe the tension should come from the chasing guards, uh, maybe with stun rods or something like that, rather than bullets being fired at you? I'm a fan of allowing freedom into the hands of the player. I personally didn't. I opted not to take part in the combat. Hmm. 
that's I think the enemies in the game were put there as an obstacle, not an opponent. And people who seem to be very down on this game, only for this reason in many cases, is because they are approaching the guards in a way where they see them as an opponent and they have to fight them. That is completely not the purpose. And perhaps this is me speaking as someone who spent a lot of the time doing the speed runs and the, you know, outside of the story mode where perhaps it's not that clear that the purpose of them. She should be able to fire a gun. Anyone can fire a gun. You, you can't necessarily fire the gun well, but you don't have to. Again, the option is there. You don't have to shoot them. Uh, in in hard mode, you. I'd argue that you kind of do have to at least in, engage them somehow because they, you can only take like two or three shots before you're down. But otherwise, yeah, you just either you you only have to just knock them out and just keep going, or disarm well, I, them. I, I think a lot of this conversation come up um, because Dice put an achievement in there called Test mm-hmm. of Faith. Mm-hmm. Um, the the description of that achievement was complete the game without shooting an enemy. So clearly, they believe that players could you know whether it even be on easy could actually negotiate the environment negotiate the bullets being fired at them and actually not have to pick up a gun and, and shoot somebody in the face um i got that achievement i did yeah. it yeah. I, I can't remember whether i did it on easy or on hard i'm going to suggest i probably did it on easy looking at my achievements here um and it, it is a challenge the there's a couple of choke points um the server room being one there's um uh, an area where you have to swing it's like um like a mall and you have to swing um, quite a difficult swing onto a platform and there's a lot of people firing at you and you, you do get ripped to shreds if you don't get it spot on perfect first time so there's definitely some choke points but you don't actually have to engage in combat now I played the game three times that way never firing a, a gun so when I came back to play this game um, for, the, for this show I thought do you know what I'm going to play through the entirety of the game using guns because this is something I've not done uh, and everyone's complained how bad the weapons are, and they're not wrong. I mean, it's it's not a shooting game. Like this comes from dice. Like I'm sure dice know how to put a gun in somebody's hands and point it at somebody and make a you know, an entertaining shooter. Clearly, they didn't want that to be what this game was. Um, whether it's because of the way the camera is, like um, Gary has already mentioned in his um, forum comment, or whether it was just look. It's an ability you can use it and kill people if you want. I think um, it's it's hard to truly know, but I can say actually playing through it that way, just shooting people, it makes the game a hell of a lot easier. Um, the difficulty comes from actually getting a weapon in the first place because you don't just find them in the environment. What you have to do, you have this faith can slow down time for a split second, and by doing that, um, their guns glow red as they as and when they go to melee you. You can then disarm them and then use that gun. And the the problem is that there's what maybe fifteen bullets in a gun, so very like one clip in a gun, um, and you have to take down the enemy and. Once they've dropped, you throw away that gun, pick up another gun, and then push through. Uh, the problem comes from there's a couple of enemies that are just bullet sponges, and you almost need two or three guns to take them down. Thus, uh, the disarm thing needs to be a lot better, because it's not great, and you can die quite easily, and it can be quite frustrating. But um, having played it just shooting people, I think it makes the game incredibly easy. Um, and I'm glad I didn't, I didn't attempt it that way first time through, because it, it becomes definitely less immersive. It seems like a like a 
for me, it feels like a last-ditch attempt to get through to the next area of the game. Like, when you're surrounded by four guys, <clears throat> when I first played the game, I didn't want to fire a bullet because I heard about the combat being pretty ropey. And it it probably made for a better game if I was role-playing as Faith in a weird sort of way. Like, Faith ain't going to pick up a gun and start shooting everyone. She can. She ain't going to be any good at it. And that's probably... In my head, that's probably why the shooting is crap because Faith would be rubbish with a gun. Like, that's the way I saw doesn't it. doesn't that and sound like some sort of, you know... I don't yeah. want to say fanboy excuse, but it... it Justifications. Yeah, it seems like a justification that, oh, yeah. the combat's terrible because dice don't want you to use the combat. And I, mm-hmm. I, I can't honestly say whether that's the truth or not. But, yeah, when I was playing around with the guns today, um, they are, like, like you say, they are pretty terrible. They remind me of, like, a bad Xbox One third-party sort of shooter. Like, the bullets don't really feel like they're contacting the, the, the way the guys die, if they've got one or two animations, there's, there's obviously no real time put into the... No feedback on the weapon either. Yeah, there's no, like, yeah, there's no yeah, feedback or contact. It just feels very, sort of, stale in a weird way. It's not, it's not fun. Like, the guns don't kick back like a Battlefield game. Like, it feels very undice. Yeah, it just did. Yeah, like, you know, from a team that's done Battlefield for, like, you know, decades, like, or, I don't know, a decade or two, it's like... One decade, last week. <laughs> it's, it's just not them, you know, and uh, it's, it's odd, but... It's one of the best achievements I've ever got alongside the agility orbs. So it actually feels like you earn something for getting to the end. It's like, you know what? I'm, I managed. It might have felt like a puzzle game at times where, okay, this guy's come to the left now, slow down time, take his gun, immediately throw it by pressing the Y button, chuck it, and then get the next guy's gun and throw it on the floor. Um, it does feel a bit like a puzzle game, and there is trial and error, but it is ultimately worth it. It's, it's kind of where the story then does play a little bit into it because, like you say, as, as Faith, I didn't feel like she was the kind of person to pick up a gun and start you know, filling people with bullet holes. Mm. You know, she she refers them clearly as you know just the blues, and to me, I actually thought that was quite interesting. You know, they're just obstacles that need to be avoided. Like you know, she doesn't need to get to know them per, uh, personally. They're just the blues, so they're just the cops. Um, so when I was going around killing people, I'm like, well, like there's a reason now for the cops to to hunt you because you are a, a cop killer and all the time that I was avoiding actually using weapons it seems like you know that that society you know there was something going wrong because they were clearly trying to kill me when you know I'd shown nothing but you know a humanity side to myself and and you know you know got out of situations without harming anybody so yeah I, I think it, it does it, you know the story actually does play a little bit into how you play faith as a person yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And I never felt any compulsion to pull the trigger on a gun at all. Certainly disarming was was really useful. But yeah, I would just throw that gun away. And the fact that the achievements there leads you to believe that that's the way dice, not necessarily intend for the game to be played, but that's the, that's the aim, is that you should be able to play through the game without firing uh, the gun at all. Um, and... Uh, I absolutely get what you're saying, Carl. That, that leaving the choice up to the player is is the ideal, and and put the the systems in there to allow people to disarm and then shoot the gun. But equally well, if that's going to be someone's complaint, then if they're given the choice to shoot the gun and they don't enjoy it, that's a perfectly valid response to to say that that's a, a sort of ding against the game, if you like, because they've been given the choice to use a gun and therefore if they then use the gun and it doesn't work all that well or they don't enjoy the feeling of it or it doesn't really lead them to have the same sort of adrenaline fueled experience that it sounds like all of us had, 
then that's kind of for Dice to say, well, should we given them have given them the choice in the first place? I'll say that the, the, the two things I think that stand out to me, which is the conversation which has been going on ever since the game's release, is do you think that Dice were pressured in into the decision to have firearms in this game or for you to have the use of firearms in this game purely as a, well, we can't release a game like this without guns? I don't think they were pressured. I, I can't imagine they were pressured. I... I I feel that they probably wanted the option in there, and just just to, I understand James's point, and I do agree with it. But to counter that is what I would say is, perhaps Mirror's Edge doesn't get the pass that many other games, many other shooters mm. do, and that is that many first-person shooters have jumping sections that are bad. Yeah, but it gets a pass because people say, well, it's not a platformer; it's a shooter. But when a platformer in 3D <laughs> does the platforming really well but has dodgy shooting, it doesn't get the same grace. And whether or not that's, that's right or wrong, I'm not here to, to argue yeah. for or against. I see both sides of it, but I, I think it, it's a point. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think the difference is that a platforming section in FPS that's about shooting tends to be one five ten minute sequence in a given level might be frustrating but once you're through it it's done and you're back on to doing what does feel good in the game whereas if you're someone approaching this game from the point of view of i'm going to disarm every uh enemy and kill them and then use their gun as much as i can then that's five or six hours of doing that that you're not enjoying potentially it's not just one section of it and then it's over if you're trying to do it with every enemy it's a lot more of the game than really it, it ought be in my opinion I think it also, I don't, I, you guys might be able to remember this or not, but dice never really uh, tell you at any point that you can or can't use the guns. Like they, you're, as a gamer, your natural inclination would be to, you know, fight anything that's engaging you. So maybe most people who have a problem with the fighting and, and make that a big complaint. Maybe they just didn't really even know that they could go on without it. I think Faith's um, melee moves are key to obviously key to finishing the whole game but i think the ones that you don't really know about like the wall you know where you run off the wall and you kick someone in the face or you literally mm-hmm. stamp on someone's head that, that and the mario style achievement pops up i can't remember what it's called it's a me faithio yeah. i think yeah i was just like i found that out by accident and it really it really pulled me into the into her body even more as creepy They're as that sounds to <laughs> off, though. i think that's that's half the problem is that Quite often, it's it's a lot easier to run, slide, kick them mm-hmm. in their shins. They go down. You just you know keep slamming the buttons, and eventually you go through the punch in. They drop on the floor, and you can pick up their you know throw their weapon away, whatever it may be. Um, very rarely did I you know be, would I be running and thinking, oh yeah, I can run off the side there, and then I can probably you know kick in mid air and do some sort of combo. It was always about either I avoid the enemy entirety in, in its entirety, or I go for the easy quick. Uh, dispatch rather than the you know some sort of multi <laughs> multi agility task of uh, jumping all over the place. I kind of wish the game had more loading screen animations that they're good, but there's not enough of them. I feel like I wanted one where I, I didn't see one where she stomped on someone's head. Like I found that out by accident. There is one where you disarm the enemy and you know you push people around and stuff. And there's another one where there, there is the wall kick and you see a, you see a kick in someone's face in, but. There, there is there is more than just those two moves, and it would be nice to see more of them in the loading screens. Um, there's never one for shooting guns. Again, it's a little nod to the gamer, like you know, 
don't really shoot your guns. So enough away from the, the negative. Let's let's talk about a bit more about the positive because we're fans of this game. But um, I know I think I think we covered a number of the the, the bigger issues that I think people experience with this game. But one, I, I I can't believe anybody does not like the still alive music in this game. It's I, it's hard to explain, isn't it? I mean, it's once again because still alive straight away brings up Portal in your mind as another weird tenuous <laughs> link. Um, but um, I'm, I'm sure we've played it if not we'll play it now um, but once again it kind of encapsulates the kind of open feel of this game this this kind of awe expiring it's, it's so hard to describe I'm terrible with music well, it kind of uh, like the visuals of Mirror's Edge are so crisp and clean and you know and lovely to look at and that song encapsulates that in an audio form pretty much perfectly it's so breezy and airy and mm-hmm. It just feels right, and when it comes up on the the instrument or comes up on the menu screen, there's so many times where I've just sort of it is the instrument on the in menu screen. It's, mm-hmm. it's like a version of it. I just leave the menu screen on because yeah. it's just so nice, and like even though the city is stripped of all its graphical effects, it's just like white sort of polygons everywhere, slightly shaded. Uh, it's just something just to just look at and just. You can almost imagine being stood on the edge of a skyscraper, can't you? On the on the mm-hmm. precipice of going over and having the wind blow through your air and you're looking over the whole city as your playground. And it, it's very seldom has a game got one song so absolutely perfect. They, they mm-hmm. used it a lot in the marketing as well, mm-hmm. didn't they? Um, oh, no. it's, it's it's done by is it Lisa Miskos Miskoski. <laughs> She, a Swedish artist. She hasn't actually done too much outside of that. She's done one or two other tracks, um, but she's probably best known for that. Uh, she well, she actually she's done a number of tracks, and they've all been you know fairly big in Sweden. But none that I've actually heard outside of that, outside of Still Alive. Um, talking about Still, I mean Still Alive. I've you know, like I say, it encapsulates the game as a whole. I, I've taken it to you know a top of a, a mountain in Scotland and, and just sat there with it, you know, stuck in my iPod. You know, the air, the the free kind of free flowing, uh, you know, just air dr- pushing through my lungs. It, it's yeah, it's it's a perfect capture of what the game is. Mm-hmm. It makes everything epic. Like Darren was saying, you leave it on the screen. I've cleaned my living room to it, and it makes it the most epic <laughs> living room cleaning music. Epic clean. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I was just going to quick say, yeah, I think the word that springs to mind for me is it, it soaring. It, it really makes you feel like you're soaring. It's the sort of music you could see, you know, films you get sort of the, the, the camera panning through the clouds and soaring over the top of whatever it's looking down on below. It's music that goes with that. It's it's a ballad, essentially, but it's got that real quality to it that you've all mentioned, you know, that sort of the feeling of air rushing by you and that sort of thing. It's, and and yeah. that does actually go throughout the sound, all the sound throughout the game. Um, you know, we talked about as you you get into that that mode of actually free running and everything's working right. Um, the the sound kind of fades out and the wind starts rushing through your head. Um, Faith herself, she starts heavy breathing. Um, little moments when you 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 you've, you've done a really long run and you smash her a door. Um, and she barges a door with her, you know, her arm and the door makes this huge bang as it kind of clatters almost off mm. the side of its hinges and you make your way to the elevator which in fact is just a loading uh, a place good place for uh, loading in the next part of the level. Mm-hmm. But she stands in the elevator going <sighs> <sighs> you're like oh. yes, I made it. <laughs> it's yeah. it's just but it, it's it's really immersive. Mhm. Yeah, you said about like the door, sort of, you know, the the visceral feeling of you smacking that door open. I, 
that kind of like um, like with the falling off a building, like the way the camera moves, really, I don't know, it really like mm. got to me. I don't know what it is about this game, but the movement really like makes me feel like it. it's really weird saying that but so I started thinking of other ways of doing it and the, the way the game allows you to freely open doors it's going to be a weird thing to talk about but I started sliding and kicking doors and jumping and kicking doors open I don't know if anyone else <laughs> was messing around with this but the game really offers some wildly unique ways of doing stuff and it was the time trials where I was just like like Carl said earlier like oh my god I can actually do that now and it just totally came uh, times um, into pieces it was yeah, it's, it's really that engine and the way Faith moves and stuff. It's really well. Um, it's so uh, free. Like it's, it, the freedom is in your hands to control Faith how you wanted to. Uh, but that's not about the music, is it? We keep bringing up Faith as a character. How, how do we feel? I mean, the story's a little thin about her, but she's an interestingly designed character. I mean, she's not. I wouldn't say your average type of female character that is presented in most games. Well, she's female for a start, which means she's not yeah. your average type of character <laughs> presented in games. So. She kind of reminds me of a modern day Jade from Beyond Good and Evil and the fact that she's got like she's got stuff around her eyes like she's got the tattoo sort of tribal marking on her eyes and Jade had like green lipstick she's got facial characteristics which makes you instantly recognize her it's like that's faith like you're not going to get her recon- uh, confused with uh, Lara Croft nearly called a Tomb Raider there. Um, <laughs> and any other, it's just faith and it it works like people may say oh you know I'm not really attracted to playing as a female character but one, it's first person, so you don't really you, you hear a few sighs and grunts here and there. But for the most part, it's it's perfectly suited to the to the um, the aesthetic of the world. I feel. Well, you feel the agility that you always get in video games, where the female characters are usually the more agile of the bunch, and you you certainly feel that agility. But it it, it was nice having a character that was first of all in proportion and wasn't advertised holding or firing guns uh, there were a, there were a couple where she was holding a gun I remember um, and then I believe they put out the same images again without her holding a gun near the game's release um, but it, it, it was nice to play a character outside of the Hollywood norm mm. yep. did they ever discuss what nationality was because it's, um, it's really interesting that, that you bring up uh, Jade actually uh, Darren because um, I got obviously she's got an Asian look to her, but mm. but on the on like the American. cover I was struck. Um, she, she's almost got a Eurasian look to her. Mm. There's definite uh, sort of Caucasian features mixed in with her her Asian uh, features as well, um, and that sort of leads into again what Darren was saying about the city, which is it's skyscrapers, but the white and the sunlight and the gives you an almost Scandinavian feel in terms of the way it, the city looks for whatever reason the aesthetic, it really has this sort of multinational feel and Jade was was very much in my mind as that as well, she it was really tough to pin down what you know, where she might be from or anything like that and she's Faith like Jade is just a character sort of of the world in this multinational city um, which has tall skyscrapers like a lot of Asian cities and American cities do, but has a, a, to me, a European feel to it as well. And I can't really pin down, aside from saying the the colour stylings and um, particularly, I, I can't really pin down what it is that makes me feel like it's European, but something certainly does. So certainly a few of the team have alluded to speed runs um, and the like uh, and Mirror's Edge did have a piece of DLC um, which was entirely based on, on that 
Mm. Um, it was very odd. I, though I, I haven't played the DLC, I know, Cole, you did. No, uh, I didn't play didn't. the DLC. No. Was it you who told me it was terrible? I never played it and didn't try it, and the reason is I didn't like the overly fantastical styling of it. The The thing I loved about Mirror's Edge was the almost the normality of the environment. A door was a door, you know, a fence was a fence, and that sort of... Those elements were completely gone from the DLC for floating islands, and that just did not interest me at all. So did anyone play the DLC here? Uh, I played... Nope. One of them, there was a free map on PS3, and that was all I needed. Just one map, because it was not enjoyable, really, in any way. So, the basis of the DLC was, it was out, that you, Faith had war abilities still, but the, the maps themselves, if I remember correctly, um, were set just like abstract within like this spatial area so there was no city or anything it was just you know if you imagine a black area and you have the platforming all around you and it was all about how you negotiate uh, through the platforms that, and I, I believe the achievements were tied to how fast you could do it so it was just pure platforming and a lot of the other stuff was was put to one side but like you say Carl it was only blocks it was about how to navigate blocks in, in the fastest time possible rather than smash through doors and, and feel like a, a sense of place now I, I didn't play it, so I can't um, say if that was the case, but I heard a number of people had quite a reaction to it that said it wasn't worth the points. I've never heard anybody say it was particularly good, and it, it seems so strange to put a piece of DLC upon a game where it features nothing upon which the game was built around or advertised upon. Hmm. I, I wonder, is is the... I haven't even seen pictures of the DLC, so I have no idea. I wonder if that's the environment they built the levels in and then they dressed, Could be, yeah. dressed it with sort of the set, if you like, afterwards. So I wonder if that's why they did it, because presumably would be fairly quick and easy to well, build an environment and then not having to put the art on top made it simpler to do. The, the reason I bring it up, because that DLC was designed around the players that were just, you know... You, negotiating the, the environment as fast as possible without all this, this story stuff. Um, and you have mentioned a number of times about this game actually really is based around those speed runs, how fast you can get through um, any given areas as quick as possible. Now, I these are the few achievements I didn't actually get. I, I found myself becoming quite frustrated through the lack of my ability to continue in the perfect chain uh, which I felt like I had in, in abundance when playing through the story mode but when it came down to follow Carl's time trial and here's a, you know, a shadow of him doing the thing in, in front of my very face I'm like and I don't know understand how he's managed to make that leap because I don't have enough uh, speed I found that quite frustrating now clearly Carl you were good at these um, and other people were good at these so so were, was I missing the trick um and, and what does it feel to be able to, to master the time trials aspect of this game? It encapsulates everything that you love about this game, but doing it over an extended period of time, um, particularly in the speedruns where it is the whole level. Um, the time trials are more specific parts of that level. But the worry I have is that people either weren't playing these or just put such a little time in and the the thing that makes me think this is if i look on something like true achievements all those achievements for the speed runs are amongst my highest rated now i've played quite a lot of hard games so it seems odd that those even chapter one and chapter two where it's not so tough 
are quite highly ranked so I'm guessing people aren't playing this game and that, that that's a travesty because the whole magic in the experience is finding these new routes um, as I've mentioned several times in this podcast there are ways around these levels that you do not see that are never pointed out to you or drawn upon in any way shape or form and discovering these and stringing them together for full speed is an experience that I've never had on any other game. The nearest I can give it is when you nail a perfectly difficult jump on a game like Trials and you have that euphoric inner fist pump with yourself and it's, <laughs> you know, that whole, get in there, yeah, go on. And it, it, it's that over a period of time again and again and that's when you realise how well designed these environments are hmm. and that's probably why I didn't go for the DLC because they look like environments created for you to speed run through with like deliberate um, you know pathways to the end whereas the the real world looking environments in the game itself you felt like you, you discovered it like if I did a little like a war run off of this dump bin and onto the you know whatever you, you found like you found out yourself because the world felt so naturally created like it just felt like a world and the fact that you could wall run off a wall and jump onto a, a cargo container and then up a ledge and onto the thing you felt like you found that out yourself whereas these abstract looking shapes and blobs floating in the air they felt purposely designed for you to do that now they might both be purposely designed but it's the it's the illusion of the the real world um you know level designs that made me play the time trials more than well, nothing of the DLC. That's it. It's empowering the player into the belief that they are the master of their actions in that environment. And mm. in the, those time trial things, I've watched videos of them. It's just not there. It, it's funny because yes, you know, I've played through the game four times, and you know, you'd think I'd been better off spending that extra time putting playing through the, the time trial stuff. But it just, you know, I, I found them actually rather frustrating. Um, and I, you know, having not having that pressure behind me to to do these perfect jumps and kind of just you know if I mess up it, it's no big deal, um, which is odd because I'm a big fan of trials. So like I I do like those variation games and maybe it's something I've I've grown into. Maybe maybe if I went back to it now I'd appreciate it a bit more. But I remember them it, it being quite daunting and, and something like I'd just rather my own pace rather than the the pressure. I think it depends how the game is presented as well. Mirror's Edge to most people who play it. And and I think, Carl, you looking at some of the, the sort of least gained achievements in Mirror's Edge, it seems most people play it for the story. And if they do that, then running through, even if it's just replaying the chapters to see how quickly you can do them, isn't necessarily something that everyone's interested in. Although it does, it, it gives you that deeper experience of the game. But certainly when, when I finished the game, my instinct was to want to play through the chapters again and just replay bits of the game that I enjoyed mm. or replay the whole game. When I started looking at leaderboards and thinking, do I really, you know, I could spend a couple of hours on two or three of these time trials or chapters trying to improve my time. I actually wanted to do it in the context of playing the single player, you know, story through again because it gave me the impetus of why I was doing this and that feeling of the panic and the adrenaline because it's part of a story. That I think that's totally understandable. And 
Uh, it's no secret that within the whole cane and rinse team, I'm probably the biggest fan of driving games. Hmm. And I think that's where what my secret fondness... to have that would have been. Though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, no, the, 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 you know the cat's out now. But it's um, I think that need to sort of push for that perfect run, the the hitting mm. of that apex, the, the 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 shaving seconds off constantly, perhaps appeals to me more because I'm a person who would rather play. I'd rather put half an hour on, on one race in a racing game than half an hour on a game where I'm going to get a bit of story. Uh, that, but, that's but just to the way James's I point, which I, I agree, like I still had that feeling, certainly maybe not in the first, you know, or the first run I just wanted to, to do everything best of my abilities, but fell off the mm-hmm. edge a lot. I think upon the, you know, a second time, third time, and certainly my fourth playthrough, even though I hadn't played it for a couple of years, I knew exactly where I was going and all that, all that stuff came flooding back to me and I'd make what seemed impossible jumps first time round, um, you know, straight away without any issues whatsoever. And just having that time being pushed behind me took away some of the actual excitement of just playing the game for playing the game's sake. Now, I, I, I get it from both points. Like I understand that, you know, having a challenge having that pressure behind you in fact can be a, a really enjoyable thing because i've had it in other games but when it came to this game in particular i felt that it made me make more mistakes and in, in fact it was a, a pressure that i could do without um, and kind of broke the atmosphere that i was looking for within mirror's edge so we're all desperate for a sequel um i'm sure we could give dice some tips how to make the sequel better i'm sure they have listened to the many Many people asking for a sequel, and in fact, you know, have taken all this upon board. But we did get a sequel of such. Um, the iOS release of this game uh, came out in April 2010. Um, I believe, was it on iPad? It's on iPhone too. It's on okay. iPhone as well, yeah. I played it on iPad, or I played a little bit on iPad. I haven't actually played past, I think, the first probably 20 minutes. Uh, for no particular reason, I think I just put it to one side. Uh, for so. so for the people that have actually played through it, is it good? We've had a few correspondents that have said it's better than the main game. So they're wrong. Yeah, they're... <laughs> are they right or indeed do they agree with Carl? That they're they're wrong. wrong. For the, the people that have played it, what what I would say is anyone who struggles with the first person perspective, particularly in terms of motion sickness or and also to a certain extent in terms of um, any color blindness or anything. The iOS game bypasses that, so you do get a little of the Mirror's Edge feeling because all the main gameplay elements are there, aside from the fact that it's side-scrolling 2D. Yeah, so it's like um, side-scrolling 2D platformer, basically, at that yeah, point. Yeah, um, it's kind of based, I, I want to say, on uh, the sort of cannibal vein mm-hmm. of games, but slightly different. Um yeah, it's it's a really good game. I can al- I cannot almost understand why someone would say it's it's better than the the main game because obviously if there were things about um, the the console version that that slightly put you off, then maybe this is just a sort of slightly different way of of digesting what seems very similar. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it addresses all the or at least most of the problems that most people have with the main game. There's no there's no shooting, and obviously being on a touchscreen the controls are just left and right up and down there's no in the combat you just have to hit the guys once and they're down it just makes everything a lot it's a much easier mirror's edge experience it uses swipe controls as well Mm -hmm. and it it does them in a way that 
feels quite natural to the experience. Um, I've I've played many iOS games that use swipe controls, and more often than not, they feel rather clumsy. Um, you know, we, we, we've had something similar with you know, Escape Plan on the Vita, which used swipe controls. I personally think Mirror's Edge on iOS actually did it a little bit better. It certainly looks like Mirror's Edge. Um, it's one of the more, if not, in fact, it is probably the best side-scrolling 2D platformer I've played on the iOS platform. Um, and, and for the money, it's consistently going into sales. Not that it's that expensive anyway. It's it's certainly worth a look at. Um. Talking about a, a, the future release, um, I mean, we've talked, we've hit upon a number of ideas. I think how they could improve their gameplay, how they could maybe take in a different direction. But there's an interesting quote out there from um, EA's games president Frank Gibru, um, who said that for a sequel, for them to greenlight a sequel, they would have to, uh, it would have to sell four times as many copies as the original did. Um. I mean, we've looked a little bit like so. It was always suggested that Mirror's Edge sold a million copies of there or thereabouts. I think James, you said having looking around that maybe it's pushed quite a number past that. Yeah. That so now. what happened was in February two thousand nine they did their first sort of um, tally and they'd sold a million. So that was uh, what three three months after release. Um, but then because Edge Gaming have this ridiculous trademark on the use of edge in any way related to video <laughs> games um he ended up in a lawsuit with with them in court with them and uh that was in 2010 and they said by that point it sold two million copies so to, to sell four times that much there aren't there aren't many games do that well you're, you're talking within battlefield yeah range exactly then. um do we think that really is a possibility for the game of this I'm gonna say this genre. It's a fairly unique experience. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure, given the right marketing, you can push anything out. But I mean, I can't imagine a, a sequel to Mirror's Edge doing six to eight million. No, it's too. Um, it's just abstract. Like I mentioned earlier, it's abstract. It's an it's an unorthodox game. As like I said with the controls, it's just not your conventional game that you see. And you know, Joe Casual just walks past game and is like, oh, uh, you know, a parkour game. Yeah, I'm well up for that. You know, he's more <laughs> interested. In, he wants to just get the FIFA game, and you know what I mean. And he wants to get the Call of Duty games. Oh, um, the latest parkour game, great. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't doesn't even sound right when you say it. And as much as I'd like to see a sequel. Um, I'd also I'm pretty I'm equally on the on the scales of just like just don't bother if that's your stupid expectations for a sequel then you're you're making it wrong and well, therefore I don't I don't want to play it. He he's believe it or not he's the person that green green lights the games and and they I can't remember there's somebody somebody that did the interview with him and he said look the the game's not dead it's the sequel's not dead in fact it's been in production out of production we're just trying to find the right time the right style you know just we've got to change something about it because the first one just wasn't a big enough success for the investment put in and any sequel is, is going to have to do a lot better. Um, but, you know, just trying to think how they could change aspects of it. Like, like I said, maybe make easy mode a, a lot more directional. Uh, I don't think necessarily getting rid of guns in its entirety is going to help it sell 6 million copies. Like all the things that we've, we've touched upon... I just think you have to take the reality that Mirror's Edge did very well as a new IP to sell one to two million copies and to expect it to be this multi 
hit franchise in the future probably is slightly misplaced and misguided and certainly if everything EA puts out in the future needs to be multiplayer I mean it probably could be quite fun to run parkouring together I'm not too sure how it works but it'd certainly be unique the, the, the thing is I'm clearly a fan of Mirror's Edge I don't want a Mirror's Edge 2 no. I don't think we need a Mirror's Edge 2 I think it's it, it it's perfectly encapsulated in a in a one and done it's left a legacy. It's a cool classic. Pretty open at the end, though. Things get left open at the end. Things get left open at the end. That, yeah. that doesn't matter. The game is perfectly capable on its own. It's a cult classic. It's probably best remembered in just having done that one thing. Okay, but would you would you rather EA put money towards another? Well, they are putting money towards another army of two. <laughs> would you rather the money be spent there or just trying to quite quite honestly I couldn't care less about EA I want DICE to make another rally sport challenge personally <laughs> myself we can all agree on that but I want yeah. a rally sport <laughs> challenge 3 more than I want a Mirror's Edge 2 Mirror's Edge 2 and Frostbite would look so good though <laughs> it would look so good I was just going to quickly say I think the issue is that DICE are the battlefields developer mm-hmm. and this was their outlet to do something different and I want DICE I think DICE certainly from the noises they're making the fact they want Mirror's Edge 2 to be made they still have ideas that they want to put in play there's refinement to be done can be done in a Mirror's Edge 2 and if DICE are interested in it then let them flex their creative muscles let them do something that's not Battlefield all the time is what I'd say I mean, I think that's, that they'll definitely do a, a stunning job if they get greenlit to do a second one. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't say no to another one, but I mean, they're the, the such a talented developer. As I've mentioned, Rally Sport Challenge, the best rally game. The, you know, Battlefield, the best multiplayer shooter, and yeah. Mirror's Edge, the best parkour game. Not that <laughs> it's got much competition. <laughs> <laughs> one thing they would need to do is get a new storyteller. Or get a new story editor because if Battlefield Three was any uh, indication of how oh, their storytelling is yeah. going, then they would need a new writer for sure. What interests me though is when you when you look at this game, and we all on the show we're all fans of this game. Clearly, um, I think when you do a, a poll of the people that are mega fans of this game, I think everybody admits that Mirror's Edge has flaws. Um, there's nobody out there that's saying, "Do you know what the combat was perfect?" or like. You know the individual aspects. Everything was perfect. It's clearly a game that has flaws, but it's clearly a game that was given, if given a second shot of a dice fixing that that stuff, or maybe having three or four years to work and in development on that. I think you you could make possibly the game of this generation. I think it has all the aspects there, and they come so close with this, but it's just a little broken in many areas, which leaves quite an uneven experience. I love the experience. But I feel like if they were given the chance for a sequel, maybe a sequel on the, on the next generation consoles, maybe that's a, another avenue they can look, you know, just beef up some of the physics. I don't know. I mean, it certainly looks beautiful. I played it on the PC um, this time around and, you know, it, it shines. The city looks gorgeous. But um, I just it, it's a game that's so close. And I think given the chance for a sequel, although, like you say, Carl, maybe it, it's better just left on its own. I think they could, they could achieve great things. Greater things.
we got a whole load of correspondence on this game um, whether it be many free word reviews or uh, a whole sh- shed load of <laughs> forum posts um, obviously we couldn't read them all because there's two pages worth um, and the show would run even longer than it is already so to say we cherry picked would be insulting to the people that didn't make it but we we tried to balance it out between the the highly positive comments and uh, some of the slightly more negative comments so um james would you like to read uh paul rooney's uh, correspondence? Yeah. which he emailed in email from paul rooney old-fashioned old-fashioned yeah. email <laughs> it sounds <laughs> odd to say but old-fashioned email uh, paul rooney says mirror's edge is a very special game and is definitely one of my favorites it managed to provide a genuine challenge along with unique aesthetic wonderful score and a story that acted mostly as a suitable backdrop The colour-coded, beautifully austere world is the star of the show, and the motivation to play the game is to experience the world as the story takes a backseat. The narrative is you and the world as you triumph over adversity and wrestle free from the clutches of an overbearing state with momentum, savvy, and a need for freedom. It truly is a beautiful world of clean, bright hues where the runners overcome the man-made urban environment. There's a strong sense of adaptability and improvisation as you need to negotiate difficult uh, as you need to negotiate difficult city environs such as sewers, aqueducts, building sites, etc. The metaphor of breaking free from the confines of oppression is something that resonated with me rather profoundly, and it quite fittingly came to an apex in the yellow-themed atrium level, where at the top the music blends with the high-up uh, high wind to create a sense of triumph. It was truly a beautiful moment. There are really sketchy areas, though, especially where the enemy has LMGs that threaten to kill the sense of momentum stone dead, especially on hard. And while they certainly didn't ruin the game, it's fair to say their absence would benefit the game, especially with an oppressive government who could quite easily have outlawed firearms, especially after the November riots. The shooting is complete nonsense, and no doubt someone at EA could not envision a first-person game sans firearms. EA did a number on this game by the inclusion of guns, but also releasing it the same day as Call of Duty World at War, which was the fastest-selling game of all time. What the hell did they expect? It was sent out to die. All in all, it's a truly wonderful game, and Lisa Muskovsky's track fits so well to create a whole aesthetic uh, world and feel quite unlike anything else. I agree. (laughs) I I don't necessarily Um, agree that it was sent out to die. I I think, you know, Call of Duty World at War was obviously going to be a huge game, but there was quite a lot of advertising for Mirror's Edge. It was everywhere. I I think it is quite telling that... um, Dead Space was released the same sort of holiday period and Dead Space 2 they put out in January I think it, it may have been if if Mirror's Edge had been a couple of years later maybe a January or summer slot might have actually um, suited them better given it some time to breathe possibly because November time is incredibly busy when it comes to game releases Another thing he brings up of that is, is talking about Faith as a character and the November riots um, one of the story aspects we, we didn't talk upon was if you dig a little deeper you, you find out that is that just her mum is killed in, yeah. in the yeah. the riots the uprising riots which uh, ultimately this this government stamped out as people tried to take back the control of their city it was stamped out and you know a member of the, you know, a number of the people were killed uh, but like he said I always found it weird that guns were, were still like yeah they're, they're cool like, <laughs> or is it the firearms are only in, in possession of the, the government forces I guess that's the idea, but I mean, 
you know, it would have been easy to have a police force who weren't armed. The question is, would it still have, have in, engendered the same sort of panic and terror that you had if it was running away from police officers who were maybe coming out of doors to try and catch you or that sort of thing? I, I don't know exactly if that would yeah. work the same way. The tension wouldn't be there with pepper spray, would it? <laughs> it wouldn't have the same effect. Giant haddock. It's going to slap you. Uh, Gary Blower wrote a generally unique and memorable game that I've played four times now on two different consoles it's a beautiful game the use of minimal saturated colours making everything look both vibrant and stark the art style portrays the police state corporate utopia as a sterile world filled with logos and base colours it's my favourite game this generation in terms of how it looks and feels the wonderful soundtrack another of my favourites and audio effects such as the rushing wind when running falling or the sound of uh, or the sound of the urban life adds so much to the atmosphere and vis- it's a visual treat I personally found Mirror's Edge to be more like more like a fascinating vertical puzzle game and feel it shares a lot with the s- lot of the same values of Portal and Portal 2 each room or a location jumping wall running vertical maze my only negative criticisms of the game are the over-reliance on forced hand-to-hand combat to break the to break up the free running, tank enemies to artificially lengthen the game, which can be done on a speed run in less than a couple of hours. Blimey, I'd love to see that. I should look that on YouTube. That'd be pretty cool. Um, the dreadful DLC, which moves Faith into a virtual world of floating blocks, almost Super Mario-esque. I managed to complete three false of a playthrough without using a gun, only ballsing up the last one by accidentally shooting a guy during a, a disarm. The additional challenge of playing through this way wasn't without frustration, but the instant restarts and reward of progressing was more than compensated. I adored this game. Snicky Dave wrote, Whenever I look back on Mirror's Edge, I always think that this game deserves a sequel. The bold aesthetic and unique gameplay were striking and refreshing then, and still are today. It's somewhat of a shame that Dead Space, likewise one of EA's new IPs in 2008, got a sequel, and soon another, whilst Mirror's Edge, the far more original title, didn't. The reason I want a sequel is because I think this game is brilliant proof of concept for its brand of flowing first-person platforming. It's seriously lacking in pretty much all other areas. The story, even if one is being generous, is a bit overambitious. You're a runner in some Orwellian dystopia that looks very clean. Then there was something about Icarus, there was a wrestler, lots of betrayal, <laughs> I forget. Part of why it's hard to take seriously is that the cutscenes stringing this all together are cringeworthy. In-game would have been far less jarring. It's frustrating because there's stuff there to like, but so little of the world is pinned down or properly defined that it's hard to care. Even the enemies are just called blues. Perhaps a smaller tale to introduce us to the world, less grand in its conspiracy, might have been more effective. All of the combat is terrible. The rebuttal is that you shouldn't be fighting, and true enough, it's quite possible to go through the whole game and not fire a bullet, but quite soon you'll find yourself having to run through someone, or at least on the first attempt, so the hand-to-hand ought to be passable, even if the gunplay is awful. But the animation, hit detection and controls are all agonisingly bad. It's telling that the game has a slow-motion mechanic. The only reason it's there is a patchwork for badly executed combat mechanics, as when used anywhere else it breaks the flow of your platforming. Mirror's Edge was proof of concept and striking visual treat, but that's it. It didn't even really evolve the gameplay much as you progressed. It stands out from the crowd, and for that it should be congratulated, but there wasn't enough of it for me to think it as a truly great game. Mm. 
<laughs> I, I, I can't see it as a complaint as you know it we've mentioned it gave you everything in the tutorial so to say it didn't evolve as you progressed it gave you the tools from the start and it was up to you how you implemented them so yeah i can't see that as a negative the only question i would ask is the um press x to slow time x on the um 360 pad i should say um is certainly useful when it comes to disarming. Did anyone use it in many of the other platforming Could sections you? of the game? I, mean, I, I think, yeah. I thought it was when the screen time. gets a blue hue, like around the outside of the screen, and that's when I thought I could use it. Yeah, I don't think you could use it at any other time apart from when you were right next to a dude. Yeah, so I guess my question would be why did you have to press a button to do that? Why not just. Because not, not using that button press and slowing time. I found it quite difficult to spot the red flash on the gun that told me when I needed to press the button. It was actually easier to ignore the red flash on the gun and just time it and get used to the timing. Um, so why not just have it auto slow down just for a second in, in order to allow you, you know, in many other games you have a Because it's all about you there. doing stuff. It's all about yeah, you yeah. being in control and making sure you do everything. But I, I agree, even the slow motion stuff and the disarming was so frustrating. Which is, well, it's too. I know it's going to sound stupid. It, it was too slow. Like hmm. as soon as yeah. you disarm, and then you go into this. What I mean probably is only a five second, but feels ten to fifteen second animation of Faith kicking them in the head, and slowly they moving back and falling on the floor. And the whole game is based around inertia. To see that happen in such a slow speed, like, it's I, I, slowing like, the speed on. down ruined. The timing for me, it's the same yeah. as, you know, when you play something like Guitar Hero and you thrash out a fast section and you're like, yes, got every note, and then the song slows down and you miss the first note because the whole timing <laughs> changed. <laughs> Benjo321 says, I'm sure I have the same gripes as many other players, but this game was barely playable for me. Being colorblind, I found the over-reliance on red to be rather frustrating. It often takes me a long time to properly distinguish red objects, so as soon so as soon as the tutorial came up to explain how to disarm weapons I knew I was in trouble I persevered and really started to enjoy moving along <clears throat> moving along the rooftop playgrounds but the sections that required multiple enemies to be disarmed forced me to stop playing this game much earlier than I would have liked if I could see the moments when you need to disarm using runner vision I could learn the timing and be able to do it instinctively but it became a frustrating trial and error exercise that I was unable to overcome it's a real shame because the art and sound design in this game are superb and the free-running mechanics are a real breath of fresh air to the first-person games. Yeah, that's... I think, you know, that's maybe if the game was released now, I think they would be a little bit more sensitive to, to people with colorblind issues. Mm. It's not... That's not an excuse. I think 2007, like, it's... <laughs> it's 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 been an issue for a long time. If you're going to realise red is your primary colour to do many things, then I think at least you should have some kind of option in there, even if it breaks it stylistically, um, so everybody can play your game in that regard. Because it's I mean not like colour blind uh, people don't make up a, a fairly large proportion mm. of society. Yeah, I hope it's one of those things that gets fixed within the next sort of generation of games where An option. it seems like yeah. it seems like subtitles in this generation were definitely more fleshed out and. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was there, accessible for people to, um, you know, to listen to everything. You can hear, like, you can read door opens, door closes, and stuff. Like, closed captions was there mm-hmm. in in many games, and subtitles were pretty much, you know, word for word as the as they were speaking. So, I hope with the next wave of games that come in the next generation, they offer more flexibility for, um, you know, colorblind people because that is ridiculous. I, I think it is. 
and uh, not not to excuse the the situation, but it's maybe just something that Dice hadn't come up against before. Uh, it's hmm. it strikes me. I mean, something like um, match three games and puzzle games long long ago came to the conclusion that that's why you have different shapes and not just different colors mm-hmm. when it comes to like yeah. matching gems and stuff like that because people who can't see the difference between any two colors i mean red and green are the ones we all think of but people who can't see that and make that distinction particularly when it's timing based need to be able to to distinguish in other ways and i think it's possible dice just hadn't come up against that with the games that they'd made previously um and and just didn't realize but it, it should be straightforward enough to solve. I mean, just simply by letting the player choose what colour to make it or um, making them striped surfaces or a different texture or something like that. I mean, I think I think it might have been Benjo who mentioned when Bioshock 2 came out that it, that it actually had a, a colourblind mode. And mm. I, I remember uh, a discussion about it because it was such a rare thing and it was quite nice for him to see it in a game. So, yeah... Mm. Uh, there are stuff that need to be added into games, certainly in terms of you know any issues players might have, especially color blindness. That's an obvious one. Yeah, I'm gonna say it's, it's you know if if he can't disarm somebody, it's, he can't even take the easier route, which is uh, shoot your way through the game on easy. But um, cause if you can't see to, to disarm, it really is a timing-based yeah. thing. So it just shows you how important that slowdown and the uh, flashing red mechanic is. Um, we had a whole host of free word reviews. Uh, thank you once again for the community for doing that. Um, I'll kick us off with Willif, which is don't shoot, run. A Furious says keep the faith. Saibutsu says flawed visionary brilliance. Surface Lizard says psychedelic vertigo fodder. Kai Enix Gideon says game, £3.98, bye. Love it. <laughs> Mishmeister said run Faith run Darth Cuddle says entirely average experience F in Jamie says vomit inducing motion Sea <laughs> Thief UK says jump miss plummet missing pixel minimal badass speed Brad Galloway better on iOS uh, cream and edge as we heard earlier vomited after demo and Justin Knowles says, I agree, well, agree with Brad Galloway. See, now I, I, I have an issue here. Because <laughs> all week I've been saying that Brad Galloway is the best journalist in games. And then he goes and says something as utterly ridiculous as that. Brad, I love you, man, but that is utterly ridiculous. His opinion. And it's wrong. <laughs> I'm not too sure we'll ever have any more free word reviews where vomit features twice. Well, if we pick the games carefully, we might. We've got to try. <laughs> Just to say on that, I know a lot of people do have a lot of love for the iOS version, so it's not necessarily damning the uh, the sort of the original 2008 game to say better on iOS. But I know Brad's amongst quite a host of people who really thought, especially given the iOS version was given away free a couple of times in sales, that it was a real pleasant surprise to find um, that it was such a good game when it could have been this throwaway uh, sort of nothing advertising thing. I mean, that's it. I I mean, I love Brad and he might be really wrong on this one, but the iOS game is very good nonetheless. Uh, If if you've got the option, play it. 
If someone's got a different opinion, doesn't mean they're wrong, dude. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> they're wrong to you, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. It, it's it's although I own it, I haven't played it for a very long time, so it's piqued my interest to go back and give it a, a second shot. Um, so let's have your summarization, guys. Uh, James. Uh, yeah, it, it surprised me when I look back today how long it took me to play this game. I really enjoyed it. I think the, the fluid motion and the the euphoria you get when you string together three or four moves in quick succession and do it all perfectly, exactly as you intend, is is that sort of the, the zenith. It's what DICE were aiming for with this game. And I think, for the most part, they nailed it. There's a few... There's a few issues, you know, that that we've talked about that could do with just sort of, you know, smoothing out for uh, for this kind of game in the future. But I sincerely hope that Dice get a chance to to show us more of what they've got in store, because a sequel could be something, you know, if they could improve on it, could be something really special. Sure. Yeah, I really like Mirror's Edge a lot. There's one thing you can say about it that you can't say about most other things is that there's nothing else like it and it's a gorgeous game and it gives you a lot of emotion or gives you a lot of feelings that you don't get from many other games it's not perfect and um, you know the story and the combat like we said hurt it a little bit but I really like James was saying I'd really love to see a sequel and I feel like in a world where Naughty Bear 2 can exist uh, Mirror's <laughs> Edge 2 has a nice place in it coming up on the Kana rinse at some point <laughs> <Yeah>. not <laughs> no never that game's the worst uh, Darren yeah Mirror's uh, uh, Edge like, like we said previously it's just it's such a unique experience that uh, you'd be a bit of a fool not to give it a try because like you can play you can play racing you can play you can play football you can play shooting you can play all those games throughout the whole year but when a game like Mirror's Edge comes out and it's so visually different and and the gameplay is just so unique to itself you've got to give it a try at least a demo and and even if you don't get on with it you can at least sort of take something away like just go yeah, you know at least they, at least they tried something different with the with games like it's it's just nice to to play something different um EA spouting off that they need to sell four times as many to make a sequel. Well, uh, I, I'm not really interested in that, to be honest, because that just sounds like it would be a game made to sell lots of copies, which is, doesn't sound exciting to me. The fact that Mirror's Edge is so unique, you know, th- th- it's so good to me, is the fact that it does what it does to be a good game and not to... Ah, it's not a game that sells to the masses, do you know what I mean? It's a parkour game, for starters. It's not going to sell 10 million copies. And if they're going to modify Mirror's Edge to make it sell 10 million copies, then that just, you know, alarm bells sign off for me and I'm not, I'm not really interested. Um, but yeah, it's brilliant. Um, it, it's one of my favourites. Uh, epic Shelf for the two words that I always use when I really love a game and it's up there and it will never leave. But if EA put DLC rollerblades in Mirror's Edge 2 or some bullshit well, like this... make it sell more, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not interested. You you really should make it epic show of material because then that's a free word review. Oh, there we go. Just saying. Um, <laughs> yeah, to agree with everybody, really. Um, it's unique. Uh, I th- I think that's a word that can be used too much in this industry um, because quite often things are very similar to other things. But when was the last time you played a, a parkour um, first person game? 
like that <laughs> I can really only think of one I think um, Portal is a different beast although it has some of the elements there certainly there is platforming but using the portals I think makes all the difference um, I love the, the inertia of this game it's, it is once again unique um, but I'm not beyond understanding that there's there's a number of broken elements in this game wherever it be because it was somewhat of a B project they didn't have enough time and money maybe to to finish it off quite possibly but could it be a better game without doubt is it one of the best games of this generation well for me it is um and like you you know if i had an epic shelf i'd stick it on there i I think it's unique it needs to be played by everybody there's a demo out there you may not get on with it it may make you feel sick but to me it's it's not it's a unique snowflake ah but uh, yeah, I, I I love it. I love the sound. I, I love the look. I love the way it plays. Um, going back to it now, I was a little worried that it wouldn't play as well as it did uh, a couple of years ago when I went through it again. And yeah, it's it's still very very good. Um, but yeah, those the story st- is even worse now. <laughs> um, some of the, the 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 elements that were broken before really stand out now because five years of, of game development have, have pushed quite far. But uh, it still feels quite fresh. Uh, Carl. Uh, visually stunning, audibly refreshing, an experience unlike any you've had before. For the fact that you can pick up this game for less than £5, it's a travesty if you don't at least give it a shot. It will offer so many experiences that you'll take away and remember, and the best way I can describe it is it's one of those games where We've mentioned on this show many times already that you absolutely nail a perfect run. You step back from that game and you think, that is why I love games. This is a game where it absolutely does that. It has its flaws. It is not perfect. But the very core elements that this game pushes at you are absolutely stunning and such an enjoyable ride. Would you say it's a flawed gem car? <laughs> Go do one, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> it's what everybody calls it, dude. Yeah, it's so stupid. They're all wrong. Get on the time trials and that game is not a flawed gem. <laughs> it is awesome. Hyperbole aside, you can... <laughs> Um, you can play along with Kano Rinse future featured featured games will include Half-Life Asura's Wrath Castle of Illusion Quackshot and the World of Illusion series Syndicate the 2012 version Half-Life 2 Cave Story Binary Domain Pac-Man Championship Edition DX with special guests in Ancuba of Joystick Half-Life 2 Episodes 1 and 2 Akami Shimu 1 and 2 Applejack 1 and 2 and Papa and Yo all slightly unannounced with dates but they will be happening at the end of the year if not within the new year those last batch of titles the month to month schedule can be found on the blog nevertheless hmm, the blog can be found at www.kanarince.com it has a funky little forum button in the right top right hand corner it's like a space invader our logo uh, the quick rinse videos uh, are found on the blog and the youtube channel that is uh, youtube.com forward slash kanarince um, some some cracker videos if I do say so myself I think some of them are, 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 are really genuinely interesting. Uh, Dark Souls <laughs> being the, the recent one um, 
I, I, I laugh, but I agree because the Dark Souls one made me desperately want to play Dark Souls, and, and the, the XCOM one made me realise I was playing XCOM badly. <laughs> uh, the, the Dark Souls one, I've had a lot of people mention me saying I wasn't interested in Dark Souls, but now I am, and that, that's really heartwarming. Um, yeah, Twitter, you can follow us at Kane and Rince, uh, Facebook.com forward slash Kane and Rince is the Facebook address, believe it or not, and you can email us like Paul Rooney did, the old fashioned way, at Kane and Rince at gmail.com. Your support for the show via iTunes subscriptions, reviews and ratings are massively appreciated. And remember to join the Cane and Rinse community and have your saying over at the, the Cane and Rinse forum, which can be found at com forward slash forum. It's all very simple, really. Uh, we'll be back next week with Half-Life. That just leaves me to thank the team, James Carter, Darren Gargett, Carl Moon, Sean O'Brien. We've been Cane and Rinse. Goodbye. We'll be back next week with Half-Life. Well, it will be in a few weeks for us for recording it, but you will know no difference. So we will be back next week with Half-Life. We've been Kane and Rince. Goodbye. Love you. <laughs> That's not how we end it. But it is it will now. Do. Volume 2, <laughs> I, need, I need to say thank you to everybody, <laughs> don't I? Nah.